Hi, I'm Ellen Curris, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hello, Ilya. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, Ben. How are you? I'm doing episode 44 is how I'm doing. Uh, yes, we are doing episode 44. And to our listeners, if you uh, log on to iTunes or actually, you know what I found out? They don't want to be called iTunes anymore. They want to be called Apple Podcasts. That's fine. Whatever. So if you log on to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or any of their services, you'll notice that there isn't a little number appearing before our, our episodes anymore. That's awesome. That'll really help to confuse listeners when they want to refer people to episodes. You know, I, I thought so too, but I guess that the search function works pretty well and we have tons of keywords in there. So if you are searching, you will probably find exactly So if you say like, hey, I want to listen to that Charles Pappard episode, you just That's t- right. type in Charles Pappard. And, and, Truth be told, not too many people remember exactly what number those were, but it's true. If you knew that something was like episode 27, you could swivel through. But if like Larry Fong is like, hey, I'm episode 22. And, you and know, he is. Is he really? I think he's episode 22. Oh, my oh, God. 21 or 22. That was a total random number I just generated. Um, well, well, good, well, good memory. Or, um, or, yeah. Or so if he's up. like, hey, check me out. I'm episode 22. I guess you just do a search for Larry Fong and, you know, Bob's your uncle. That, there you oh, go. Oh, uh, he's 21. I was off by one, Larry. Sorry about that, dude. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, I can't wait to have Larry back on the show. Uh, I, I, I just want to <laughs> hang out with Larry because he's so funny. He's like one of the one of the actual you, for real funniest people I've, I've ever met. You would not know that from our interview, though, or any interview you see with Larry. He does not come off as like, you know, a barrel of laughs, but he is a barrel. Larry is genuinely hilarious. He's funny. He's got a great sense of humor. And and I think that this this is the gush about Larry Fong episode. Yeah, I'll okay. st- I'm going to stop it now. <laughs> Larry's Larry's ego uh, is already. Uh, I, what am I saying? I love, he I love has Larry. No, he has no ego. He's a great guy. You're kidding. Uh, probably one of the hum- most humble people you'll meet. He was so. awesome. OK, so anyway, so we'll have Larry. <laughs> back on one day and yada 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 uh bing bang boom and uh <laughs> moving on <laughs> so Ilya, you had a new segment that you kind of wanted to try out here yeah uh i think it's you know you and i have a lot of conversations not just here on the podcast but but offline and there's a lot of i would uh, say the, the, our audiences should know that we're actually pretty good friends and we don't despise each other like siskel and ebert did we, and we're not like in opposite parts of the country we're sitting in the same room right now about four feet from each other in fact so. really i think we've only ever had one interview that was that was done where where we weren't sitting in the same interview room with somebody and and what what most people can't tell is that ben smells fantastic that is uh that's a straight up lie that's Go really true ben does not smell fantastic. i don't smell not today <laughs> but you can't smell ben so that that's great <laughs> so so here here's the thing we sometimes go you know cut straight to the chase we go in very quickly to our interviews uh but i feel like some of the conversations we have might really be of interest to you the listener so one of the things that uh one of the reasons i really wanted to do this podcast and one of the reasons um well i'll just say it i think that the director of photography position and you can agree or disagree with me but i think that the dp or the cinematographer should be an above the line position. And if you don't know what uh, what an above the line or a below the line position is, I don't know if we should go entirely into it right now. Well, but it's, it's pretty a, easy. The above is. the line is is all the stars, the director, the writer, and the producers. 
Yes. So if you are above the line, generally you get residuals from a project. Mm -hmm. You have extra money coming to you. Whereas if you are below the line, you are the help. You are the crew. You are the people who are making it happen. You are paid a wage. And typically you do not receive residuals or additional payments depending on the success of the project. Yes. And uh, I would go further than saying that about just the DP should be considered above the line. Production designer. Production designer. Editor. Yeah. Composer. There's some there's some real key people, but I maybe the maybe that's the issue is that coordinator Mm -hmm. like these people when you're making I mean, it really all depends on what you're doing. VFX coordinator. Like if if you're making a Fast and the Furious movie, I think the second unit director, which is also not considered an above the line position, should be above the line because that person is making all of the chase scenes in the movie. Yeah, the creative decisions. They're they're yeah. really, you know, I mean, instrumental. He, into here's, I mean, it's like the above the line, below the line thing is is kind of an arbitrary designation that, that kind of, you know, sets some people out to be in a higher cast in the movie cast system than, than others and whatever, ego, blah, blah, blah. But uh, the residual thing is the thing that bothers me because, um, for instance, and I'm not down on actors, many of my closest friends on earth are actors. Um, But if you're an actor who has one line in a movie, you'll get residuals on that movie forever. Whereas if you're a DP who comes in and shoots the movie and basically creates the look of it, you get no residuals. And color times it potentially or is in grading. It, it, It gets even worse. If you're in the loop group, so the loop group is like, hey, we need someone to uh, loop group is like one of the things you do towards the end of post where it's like, hey, we need General Wale in this in the scene. So the people talking, hey, we need to hear peas and carrots, peas and carrots. Yeah, we need to hear the person on the other end of this phone line. Hey, we need, you know, it's like people just making general. It, they're basically like the they're the, receiving residuals. They get residuals for everything. It's a SAG position, and I'm not saying they shouldn't get residuals. I'm just saying the DP maybe did a lot more to create the the way that the movie. movie feels than someone who's like pretending to be a cop on the other line. So maybe the argument is is that oh, it's a slippery slope. You know, if we if we let the DP get if we let the DP have residuals, then all these other people now have to have residuals as well. And well, is there enough money to go around? I do think is it that- goes into this in that uh, when you're talking about. Um, when you're talking about residuals, you're talking about guilds versus unions. Sure. So like, for instance, I'm in the director's guild and, and when I direct something, I get residuals on whatever that thing is with a union. So the union, the, the two main unions you're going to deal with in the entertainment field are IATSE and Teamsters. Mm. And, uh, I don't know if this is still the case, but I'm pretty sure it's still the case. Casting directors are part of the Teamsters union and casting directors are another thing that I feel like they should get residuals. So IATSE would include like all camera people, all editors, grips, electrics, art department, up, down, sideways, everybody. So I, the slippery slope argument, which I wouldn't really agree with, is like, well, if I give the DP uh, residuals, then I got to give, you know, the, the production assistant. Yeah, I got to give. Well, I, yeah, I got to give the, the guy who came in and painted the flat for half an hour. I got to give that, that guy a residual. You know, what's interesting. Do you remember that company Indigent? Indigent. I do. They had a business model. Speaking <laughs> yeah, 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 we're, which, we're about to get into Indigent big time here in this interview. Yeah, I know we are, but you're giving it away. So oh, yeah, but sorry. Indigent had a business model in which everybody including the production assistants got a residual they all got a piece of the the pie so to yeah. speak uh, i'm not necessarily arguing that that's the best way and i don't believe indigents around anymore either no, so that's not. Uh, but there are definitely some key people uh, maybe makeup i mean there's some there's uh, art director there are some people well, who, i mean like there are some movies and i say this as a former makeup artist where the makeup artist comes in and like put some base and powder on the talent yeah, and call and, it a day and, yeah. and that's that yeah and then there are movies 
uh, where, you know, like you make Meryl Streep look like Margaret Thatcher. And I know that that's a special makeup effects thing. But, you know, even just if you're if you're there to do like super glamour or, or period makeup, like let's say you're doing the favorite and you're doing period makeup on all of these amazing actresses, you know, like that person is a huge creative contributor. They didn't just walk in and, and do some crap. They had a whole pre-production process. They, they had, might have been doing this for months beforehand and too. hair, too, by the way, which is a different thing. Also unionized. So I, I mean, my feeling, and when I found out that like, for instance, you know, on, on the, on the stuff I've done, like the, the DPs don't get residuals, the editors don't get residuals. I was like, what if everybody got residuals, but it's like, you know, you create some kind of a sliding scale. So the IATSE, uh, you know, grip for every hundred dollars that the DP gets in a, as a residual, that grip maybe gets, you know, some, some percentage. 50 cents or something, right? Yeah. But if you're a grip and you work enough, then you start to, that, that stuff starts to add up. Because the other thing is that like, if you're a director, and I think this is DGA kind of thinking, if you're a director, you're not going to make 17 features a year, but I don't know if DPs are going to make 17 features a year, but they might make three, you know, so like they can, they get to make more stuff than a, than a director. And a lot of the DPs we've had in here have kind of said as much. Yeah, that, that, that's true. But it sure would be nice to feel like the really successful projects out there where great ideas come from, yeah. uh, you know, they don't all just come from one person's head. They don't sprout from one person's head. It is truly, it's truly a collaboration. And there's a reason why the many people out there want to work with their people, which they will, I'm sure, consider the best people or the best people for that job is because they contribute so much to the final product. Of course. So. You know, I'm I'm just going to say it right now. I think that maybe we should start with DPs. Maybe DPs should be the first uh, union people who should be moved to above the line. Maybe they should. Uh, or maybe you come up with a designation. Because I feel like what's going to happen, and I don't feel this way personally, but I feel like there's a lot of people who like to feel like they're a god because they're a director or producer and they don't want like, oh, no, like, you know, the, this such and such camera guy is now going to be considered above the line who cares what they can what they're considered i think it should be a position that gets residuals because to me uh i wouldn't be doing this podcast if i didn't think cinematography was a fascinating and b uh, essential to the filmmaking process like there is no cinema without the cinematographer there isn't and and cinematographers i think are uh, outrageously underappreciated we we fetishize directors and make a big deal about what directors do and i'm not trying to say that directors don't do anything and i direct stuff and it's very the craft is important to me but dps have a whole other skill set and I feel like if you had the exact same movie if name any movie if you had the identical movie shot by a different DP be a totally different movie but and 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 this isn't even to denigrate like production designers but if you had a different production designer I bet the movie would be similar Hmm. but if it was a different DP uh, I think that it would be as different as if it was a different director that's my opinion hmm Interesting. So to me, maybe that is an argument for making DPs above the line, because I think DPs, you know, they they make the image happen. <laughs> you know, directors tell the story as one DP uh, once said to me about the, uh, you know, he, he worked with the same director all the time. And he kind of said, he's the rapper and I'm the DJ. Mm-hmm. And I think that's I, I think that's an apt comparison, actually. Yeah. that you know, um, both can stand on their own, but so much better if they work together. Of course, of course. But, you know, my my point being, though, yeah, I I think it's a little scandalous to me that DPs don't get residuals. And I I would put editors in that uh, consideration as well. Yeah, and editors completely change the movie as well, too. You put two different editors and it's not going to end up the same. Exactly. Editors 
have a, a giant voice in the way uh, a, a thing comes out, whatever it is. And again, I mean, I think production designers make an enormous difference and they probably should be considered in there. I think, you know, when you're when you're making something like The Martian or any of the Marvel movies, how how big of a voice does the VFX supervisor have? Like those people are yeah. are, are enormous in the process. Oh my God, the storyboard artists too. I mean, it's like uh, you well, know we we've spoken to storyboard artists on this the show. Sure. Uh, it's it's incredible how much the movie gets visualized at that point and sometimes doesn't change. Well, storyboard artists, yeah. I mean, and that's the thing that I think a lot of people don't even understand is that stuff that isn't written before the director even gets to it. The storyboard artist is usually like sweating over these giant sequences, sometimes with again with a second unit director on um, on a movie like a giant Marvel movie or a giant like, you know, Tony who we had on here. You know, he works on the Fast and Furious movies. He works on a lot of Marvel movies. And it's like they're coming up. They're figuring out the visuals of the storytelling. And it and it's again, it doesn't take anything away from the director. The director Not at all. on those things is like Marshall. It's like it's or like the producers or anybody else. You no, know, everybody's there to do to do a job and they're all working their asses off. And the director, frankly, is kind of the nodal point that everything kind of comes to. So they get to say no to this the way the sequence is, is built. No to the way the DP wants to light that. No to this makeup design or, you know, yes to any of those things. <laughs> or yes, yes, yes. Sometimes yeah. they say yes. I just always say yes. <laughs> I, just, I just have a rubber stamp that says yes. Yes. Just, I, I love all your work. Well, we're not going to delve too much more into this now because uh, I think we've covered all the main points, but this probably won't be the last time we discuss this on the show. And uh, I, I'm, I may start campaigning myself personally here to, to try to affect change for, uh, you know, advocating for, for this because uh, Lord knows, I think there's a bunch of DPs who'd probably be uh, I, in favor of it. I think, I think that they deserve it. Um, yeah. And also listeners, uh, if you have topics you would like to hear yeah, our absolutely. opinions about, you know, hit us, hit us up. Uh, speaking of which, don't you have uh, some uh, listener mail in our mailbag? We do. Uh, we got a great uh, message on Instagram from uh, Joshua Quitby Andrews. Joshua, if I screwed up your last name there, my apologies. But uh, Joshua writes, hey, guys, just wanted to shoot you a message and let you guys know that the podcast is freaking incredible. Awesome. I'm currently transitioning from photographer to cinematographer, and your podcast has been one of the things that has kept me motivated to keep working while I'm stuck at my shitty nine to five job. I just want to say this is the perfect episode to read that email on. Uh, keep up the great work, guys. Looking forward to the next one. P.S. I recently had my domain stolen by some random Chinese company. Oh, no. That's holding it ransom. What does that have to do with us? Uh, well, you talked about how uh, Ben Rock was taken by a, oh, a motorboat company. Benrock.com has never been available since the internet existed. There was a company called Benrock, all one word, that made like motorboat motors. We, we don't need to go down this path one more time, Ben, but, yeah. but Joshua finishes here. Uh, I hope that you end up taking your name back. Ben. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And currently there's nothing at benrock.com, so maybe, maybe one day I'll get it. And if not, I'm, I'm, I'm quite sanguine with benrockonline.com. Well, what's wonderful about this episode, actually, in particular, is we're in the dream fulfillment business today. Like, really, we, Big ha time. we have fulfilled a, a dream of the podcast since episode one, since, since the before beginning. episode, since one. before episode one, one, we, of, the, one of the people we had we, a list, we yeah. had a list way back then of like, these are our must gets, kind our of must have white, the white whales, the, exactly. pe the people that we were like, if we're lucky, we're going to get to interview this person. If we do this well enough, if we don't suck, if we're, if we're okay at this, if we're okay. And, and we totally did. And you did. And, and crazy. Uh, you, so you, you deserve the honor. Tell everyone who's on the show today. We interview Ellen Curas, who, uh, if you're not familiar with her, you should 
just go look her up on IMDb. I sort of feel like Ellen Kuros, to look at her career, is sort of to look at the uh, trajectory of independent film during the independent film rise. Wow, that, that's, a, that's a great way to put it, actually. Well, yeah. she's personal friends with Christine Vachon. She went to school with Christine Vachon. We get into this in the interview. Uh, she shot uh, Swoon. She won a cinematography award at Sundance. That was her first feature that she had shot. And it was made, I believe, for fourteen thousand dollars. This is all stuff that's in the interview, so I'm not going to go over it. But I have been, and she's one of the cinematographers that has been on my radar since I was in college, seeing movies like I Shot Andy Warhol, and then like later on seeing stuff like um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. You watch a movie like that, and you go like, "There's something different about the way this is shot." And it's not just Michelle Gondry, who is a who is a visionary director, but there's something about the shooting of that or Summer of Sam. Oh yeah, um, her work with Spike Lee. Yeah, oh, yeah. She, incredible. And and, uh, and, so, and or uh, you know you brought up earlier Indigent. So she shot Personal Velocity, Personal Velocity for, yeah. for Indigent, yeah. and uh, that movie sold me a PD one fifty. Like I saw that and I'm like, okay, PD one fifty is okay. I, re- I remember when you had that camera. Yeah, I still have that camera. Um, so uh, so anyway, Ellen Kuras is someone who I've always wanted to talk to. I think she's a genius. She's wonderful. And uh, I couldn't be happier that I got to, you know, spend whatever an hour or so asking her uh, a bunch of cool questions. And so without further ado, here is the awesome Ellen Curras. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm here at Hot Rod Cameras in Burbank, California, flying solo, no Ilya, with Ellen Curras, one of our bucket list cinematographers to get on the show. Thank you so much for coming out. Oh, it's my pleasure. Great to be here. So before we uh, even dive in, I kind of have a stock question that I, I start everybody asking. And to me, it's, it's to jumpstart the idea of how do, we, how do we take words and turn them into pictures? And I know you have a lot of thoughts on the subject. So this is probably going to be very reductive, but here goes. I believe that a lot of cinematographers, when they're looking at a script, they're imagining what it's going to look like, i.e. the lighting, or how it's going to be framed, i.e. the composition. Do you find when you're reading a script, are you seeing either one of those or are you like, what are you seeing as you read a script? Well, when I read a script, I'm actually listening to hear what is the meaning of what they're saying and what's happening in the script. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm looking first for meaning because then to me, if I understand what what the scene is trying to say and what the characters are trying to do and who they are and what's happening in the scene, then I start imagining, you know, where they are in the in the space. I start imagining space. I imagine the light. But first, it really comes from the first thing I'm thinking about is, you know, what are they trying to say? What's what's the message of the scene? So for me, you know, the meaning is first and then the form follows. Once you've divined the meaning out of script or a scene or, or whatever you're shooting, what's the step between that and like telling whoever it is that has to get you the trucks and the gear and the what's the whatnot that you're going to need to make it like what's the step of figuring out how to make that into pictures? Well, I think in dealing with a scripted uh, piece of material, you know, for me, once I have a picture in my mind, I'll go and do research first. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll think, okay, I have a sense of the way I want this to feel, the way I want this to look. And then I'll discuss with the director. I mean, usually if I'm the cinematographer on a movie, I'll go through the entire script with the director blow by blow. I want to know what the whole arc is of the of the film. Mm-hmm. And then I'll go through each scene, each part of the scene, and I'll say to the director, what do you want to say with the scene? Why was the scene written? So what are we trying to grasp here? Do you want to 
you know, is the, is the character betraying the other character or are they making a change of heart or whatever, whatever is happening in the scene? I need to know that because then I can help the director to influence the blocking. Mm-hmm. So once we have the sense of what's happening dramatically, then we look at references. Uh, I'll look at references with the director through books or movies or tear sheets that I put together. And then it's only from then that I start to create what becomes my list for lighting. Mm -hmm. You know, what's the lighting going to be? Is it going to be hard? Is it going to be soft? Do I want to be able to change that? Uh, Is it going to be monochromatic? What's the tone of the cinematography? So how does that fit into the story? So for me, you know, I, I don't have a style per se that goes through every single movie. You know, it's like I don't use the same lenses for every single film. Yeah. Um, or even the same format. Like you were one of the first that dove into DV filmmaking, as I recall. Exactly. And for me, then it was like, well, given this medium, what can I do with this? And and at a certain point, some people would say, you know, even given the DVD medium, that it's like, oh, well, it doesn't have X amount of megabytes to it. And I thought, yeah. I'm not about the amount of resolution or the amount of megabytes. What I'm about is how can I use this to say what I want to say with the material? So... You know, for me, it's always about, you know, the meaning comes first and the form comes second. So it's like, how can I use the tools and which tools are available for me to be able to say what I want to say? So uh, let's back up a little bit. Were you a film school person? I know that you started uh, as a director or you started wanting to direct, uh, but did you yeah. go to a film school? Um, not exactly. I went to Brown University oh, okay. and I was studying. I originally went there to study Egyptology because I was really <laughs> interested in the ancient world. And I realized I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in a library. And mm-hmm. but but key was is that I had a French teacher who was really interested in visuals and also in conjunction I was able to take classes at Rhode Island School of Design. So I took a photography class and I was completely enthralled in photography. I wanted to quit Brown and just be at RISI. And of course my parents were like you know said no. There's no because they could wanted do that. that sweet sweet Egyptology money coming yeah. coming away. <laughs> Exactly. Well, I couldn't even do that because when I got there, the professor was on sabbatical, so I couldn't even take any Egyptology classes. So with photography, I realized that uh, it was a whole other world. I mean, the moment I put my eye up to the viewfinder, suddenly I was looking at the world in a different way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had never really taken that many photographs before, although I was a big movie buff and I loved going to movies and I was very influenced by movies. And I was struck by how movies can educate people and and make them aware of different situations and and change their idea about certain things. So I started looking into imagery much more and I became really interested in propaganda. So I ended up going to France for a year to study what was the study of propaganda or any propaganda in particular? Um, Well, I was interested in interwar period propaganda because Mm -hmm. it was the most literal propaganda at the time. Heartfelt, you know, there's different people who were putting montages together. There was at a time when people were looking at propaganda and and more literal types of propaganda. But for me, I was interested in propaganda as an idea. It's like every single movie that we make is really propaganda. You're trying to convince the viewer of a certain point of view. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I started. I studied in France for a year, and then when I came back, I went back to Brown. Then I started taking some film classes at Rhode Island School of Design. Oh, yeah. But they were very rudimentary at Mm -hmm. that time. 
So I decided I wanted to be, uh, you know, working in political films. I was really interested in films like Z, uh, The Battle of Algiers, uh, this film, old film called Billy Jack, because I was oh, yeah. really interested in Native American. What about like Medium Cool, uh, Haskell Wexler? Exactly. Exactly. So I decided I wanted to make films and got out of school, was got a Fulbright grant to go to Europe. I oh, wanted wow. to go to Poland, of all places, to go to the Wood School of Film. Mm-hmm. But martial law fell at that time, and so I had to change gears. And that's when I decided, okay, I'm going to get into try and get into the film industry however I could. So the long and short of it is, I, I you know, took some classes at NYU, and then um, had to make a thesis film. And in making the thesis film, I came to it as a director. I had to find someone who could shoot it for me. So mm-hmm. I asked around and somebody recommended a cinematographer. And uh, I, you know, it was interesting because I sat down with him and I told him the kind of ideas I was looking for, even though this was a documentary situation. And we went and we shot for three, four days up in Rochester, New York, where I was focusing on this Laotian family. And when the dailies came back, and at that time they were on Steenbeck, so it was yeah. film. Everything was film, 16 millimeter film. Wow. I looked at the dailies and I said, you know, they they were really beautifully filmed, but, but they didn't say anything to me. They didn't speak to me. And I didn't know exactly what that was until I thought, I, I don't know what this is. I have to f- pick up the camera myself and try to find out what this is. And part of that was that, you know, I realized in my years later is that it was in a way a quest for meaning. How do you create meaning with the camera? How do you create story with the camera? We can make this interview really short if you could just explain that. How do you create meaning with the camera? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Probably have to just go see the films. Yeah. <laughs> but that, but that's a whole thing. Is that I think that you know people think cinematography are just you know beautiful luscious images. But there's so much more to it than yeah. that, and and that's the thing that has sort of, you know, been my life, my life quest, my journey. You know, is the quest for meaning and how to create meaning and and w- how do we create metaphor? So it all really comes down to, you know, my life has been about metaphor. So was it around then that you decided to specifically pursue cinematography? Well, yeah, because I picked up the camera and I started shooting myself and. It's interesting when I look back to that material, the first stuff that I ever shot, I thought, wow, it was really good. It was, I was aware what, what of the of stuff light. Was it? I was aware of, I was, well, I shot this old grandmother who I brought some fish for her to cut. And because she was from Laos and these people were refugees and they were put into this housing development in Rochester. Oh, so it was still in this documentary of it your own. It was in this documentary that I started, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, the juxtaposition of these people who lived, you know, in the jungle, in wooden houses, you know, in rice paddies and, and tobacco fields where suddenly here in Rochester, where it was completely white, modern and, and modern in not a great way, but, you know, cheaply put up apartment buildings. And I thought, wow, you know, I have to say something about that. So I had to, she was wearing very traditional clothes. And so I shot her within this doorway and being aware of the light I don't know why, but I opened up the door behind her and it gave this incredible glow behind her and I allowed it to be silhouette. Mm-hmm. So I started zooming out from her chopping this fish and you would have thought that maybe she was someplace in Southeast Asia. Pulled, I kept on pulling out where you see that she's not there, that she's in this completely sterile place and kept on 
pulling back to where we see some of the teenage kids who looked like punk rockers were lying <laughs> on the hill. And so for me, I suddenly thought, oh, I've just told a story about this woman's life in yeah. one shot. So, you know, to go full circle after 20 years of not giving up on this thesis film that I started because uh, the film was about Laos. It was really hard to get into Laos. Laos was a classified country. I couldn't make the film I wanted to make. I couldn't get the archival fo footage I wanted to make until years later when I finally was able to go to Laos. And I was also really busy. I was doing three features a year. So in 2006, which was you know 20 years after I had started that film, and which was nagging at me for years, I thought, I have to finish this film. So um, I was asked to shoot Recount with Cindy Pollack. Mm -hmm. And I basically, you know, did some tests with him and we were going to do the film. And I realized I have to finish my film because Sydney was, got sick at that time and he couldn't do it. So it was kind of yeah, in Jay limbo. Roach made that movie, yeah, right? Jay Roach ended up coming in. And so I decided I couldn't do it with them. I, I was going to do my own film. So I finally went to go finish my film and had to believe in it again because here it was after so many years, you know, people knew me as a cinematographer and here I was going to finish a film that was about, that was my film, my vision, not somebody else's vision. So it was a bit daunting to go back to it to say, all right, I have to believe in this material again. I have to go back and finish it. Did you go back to any of the actual people who you interviewed? Oh yeah, yeah, I went back to Tavi and I said, listen, if you come back to finishing the film, I'll give you a co-director credit. Oh wow. You know? So let's go back and finish it. So that's what we did and we, you know, it was a film, I wanted it to be a very personal film, a first person experience. Um, and how do you find that voice? I mean, it was really tricky for me to be able to capture that voice. But it, that film for me was kind of an experimental ground about point of view and how to use point of view, how to do um, how to do a poetic film without it being recreation in a way that really was true to the story. Mm -hmm. So um, so we finished and we ended up getting nominated for an Academy Award and we won the Primetime Emmy for it. Where did it air? Uh, aired on POV. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh man, I need to see it now. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I, I, I was, I'll give you the full length version. <laughs> I'd love to see it. I mean, how often do you go back and uh, revisit some of that earlier work like that? You know, it's funny. I don't really go back and look at my films. I always ask I'm people saying. that because I'm. Always, I always wonder, like, do people go back and look at you know because they remember making it, they remember the revelations they had, and you know, obviously, you would see such progress in your career, obviously, from that moment because that's the beginning, but. Well, it's almost like, you know, one's had the ideas and then you move on from those ideas and yeah. you're looking to other ideas. So earlier this year, I sat with Spike Lee, who asked me to come in and speak in his class. And we he ended up showing a cut of Summer of Sam mm -hmm. to the class. And we laughed our asses off. We It was so funny to see... Uh, you know, sitting there with him, because I hadn't seen it in years and years. Mm -hmm. And to see all the moments where, you know, behind the scenes, certain things happened. And we just laughed and, they, and they, the students, you know, they, they didn't understand what we were laughing at. But <laughs> Mike and I had this thing going on. So it's actually really cool to go back and look at work again. Um, when I went back to remaster this film I did with Rebecca Miller, Angela, it was interesting to go back and see that oh yeah, what I thought I was doing, I actually did do, that those colors are there. And it was all photochemical. And that's the thing that kind of blows me away, this being a cinematography podcast, 
the difference between what we did in photochemical world and what we're doing now in digital is remarkable because I mean, when I when I shot the movie Blow, it was all photochemical. Yeah. So each one of those periods, from the fifties all the way up until you know the two thousands, was all photochemical. So any changes I made had to be in the camera. So, so it was interesting to see, you know, that you know the different lenses I used for blow you know I used uncoated lenses in the beginning I used tungsten light and I when I changed to HMI it was only when HMIs came into being yeah. so I wanted to be true oh, to interesting. what like period wise you only included HMI light when HMIs existed in the time period exactly oh that's brilliant right because I wanted to get the feeling of it more than anything of like what a movie would look like in those oh that's interesting exactly well and if I'm not mistaken on Summer of Sam uh, you did a lot of like cross processing kind of stuff did you not we did so Spike was you know had been heavily influenced by cross processing that was started by himself and Malik on on Clockers yeah yeah Um, beautiful movie so the and I was really enthralled with the color and the deep richness of the color because sometimes it's really hard to get to that other look. You know, when you're dealing in in the photochemical stages, you know, people would try to manipulate the film in different ways. You know, either pulling the processing, which means underdeveloping the negative, or cooking the negative in an yeah. in an oven or cooking the print. Flashing. I mean, you know, there's all of these different ways that we would try to do things to try and create different looks. So with the cross-processing, I was really wildly thrilled to use it. It was difficult to use, though, because it was very slow. The stock was yeah. 100 ASA, and then there was even slower stock, which was even richer colors, which was 50 ASA. So if you're shooting that at night, you need a lot of light in order to be able to get an exposure. I mean, yeah. that was part of it. Well, and then also, a, like, when you're cross-processing, you're shooting reversals, so there's not a whole lot of latitude on that to begin with, correct? Exactly, exactly. So the blacks are going really black. So I had to really be aware of that in, in what I was doing. And, and and I did test beforehand, so I knew what my range was. Yeah. So I, I laughed when I think about test, you know, and how when I first started shooting, I mean, I didn't really understand what tests were for, which mm. is, you know, I mean, why do you do tests? I didn't understand the idea of contrast because I hadn't really taken a cinematography class. So I didn't know, uh, I had to do it by learning. So there is one thing that I went back to look at was when I was shooting Swoon. When I got asked to shoot Swoon by Tom Kalen, I'd never shot a feature before, nothing, nothing dramatic and never shot black and white before. And so I I didn't know really what I was looking for. And so I I did this test of Christine Vachon in the office. Mm-hmm. And when I looked at it, I guess it was about three years ago when I was cleaning my stuff oh, out. Oh, you looked at the test. I looked at the test and I thought, <laughs> you know, the test doesn't really show anything. You know, it's <laughs> like I was doing exposure changes, but that's about it. You yeah. know, I didn't understand, you know, looking for the range of contrast and looking for when the shadow areas go black. So it was, it was, uh, it was funny. I sent it to Christine and she had a good laugh. You know, it's like, <laughs> well, that, that really brings me to, I, I sort of feel like, you know, uh, swoon was the first time that I was, uh, I don't even know that I was necessarily aware of your work on swoon. I was just aware of swoon. I think the first time I was like, who shot that? It was on, I shot Andy Warhol, which is only a few years later, mm-hmm. but 
uh, you know, looking at your filmography, like you definitely were one of the go to people in sort of the indie explosion that starts, you know, late 80s and ends probably early early aughts. I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you shot some of those outrageously landmark films. And I think Swoon, you know, being like a landmark of queer cinema and a, and a film that like it came out. I was in film school when it came out. And and it was one of those things where it's there are a few movies that, that do this where you watch it. And you're like, really, you can do that. Like you're, you can just go make a movie like that. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the, the process of uh, ideating how you were? I mean, especially since it was your first feature. How did it how did it come about and what, what were your thought processes? And, you know, I, I just paint me the picture of what it was like to sort of be on the forefront of, of indie cinema back then. Well, you know, it was interesting because uh, there were no. There were no girls certainly working as cinematographers Mm -hmm. in the film industry, at least that I knew of, except there was uh, Caroline Champadier in in France, and there was one woman in in England, Mm -hmm. documentary person on the West Coast. So, you know, I didn't have any expectations when I went into my meeting with Tom, Tom Kalin, who's the director. And there was another cinematographer who was also up for the job, who had done two movies. And I, and I thought, well, I'm just coming in because Christine said, you know, I really want you to come in and give me your reel. And I didn't even have a reel at that time. I just had some of my own film on film and some other things that I had done. Can I stop you real quick? Like, yeah. h- how did you know Christine Vachon? Again, like, you know, one of the pioneers of that, that movement of indie cinema. Well, Christine went to Brown. Mm-hmm. She was a year younger than I was. And I can't remember exactly how we ended up meeting each other, but... I went to what was the new media center, quote unquote, at Brown, which consisted of a rolling cart with a television and a VCR. That sounds like a media center. (laughs) If you put it in the middle of the room, it could be central. So, um, and I hadn't really taken any media classes at Brown because I I did semiotics, but I did all of my coursework in France. Mm -hmm. So... Um, we ended up meeting and sitting down and she, and I actually, I saw her uh, last week and she said, oh, don't you remember that we ended up having coffee at Carhouse? And I said, I don't even remember that. I, I just remember later on that when she decided that she, Barry Ellswit and Todd Haynes were going to start a collective called Apparatus Films mm-hmm. and they took Barry Ellswit's trust fund. And they decided that they wanted to make small films. And these were particularly about what was the beginning of gay cinema. And And that had to be terrifying at the time because like indie cinema becomes a big deal by the mid 90s. But back then it was, you know, still hard to hard to get distribution on on smaller films. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, I mean, but but Christine had a vision for what she wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And I just happened to be very lucky that I was in New York at this particular time. And I happened to work, um, my boyfriend at the time was a cinematographer, and he worked on this short little film that, that Todd did called Davy and Goliath. And I was the camera focus, I was a focus puller. And so Christine knew me from sitting on the camera next to Steve pulling focus. And I don't know how she knew this, but she knew that I was making films on the side. Yeah. She knew that I was shooting. And so... I guess she was watching me, but, uh, you know, work or, or she had heard about what I was doing, but she asked me to send me her, my reel. And I said, I don't have a reel. Oh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've just been doing things on the side and I have some things on my steam back. Make a long story short, she urged me and kept on bugging me to, co- you know, to send me some stuff and which I did. And the first documentary that I ever saw called Samsara 
which we I shot in Cambodia with one of my closest friends, Ellen Bruno. And Tom had seen this film and he called me in to meet with him. Mm-hmm. So like I said, you know, there was somebody else, this other guy who was assuming that he was going to get the job. And I had very little expectations that I was going to be able to get this job because I had never shot anything dramatic before and nothing in black and white. So you've done all documentary up until that point? All documentary, mm-hmm. right? So I sat down with Tom and what was really interesting is we didn't talk tech. We talked ideas. Yeah. And that kind of cemented our connection and our relationship. I mean, he's also somebody who tends to be more intellectual when it comes to thinking about cinema and, and, you know, the approach to cinema and the idea of ideas and meaning and that kind of thing and how to juxtapose one thing to the other. So we ended up having this incredibly involved, engaging, inspiring conversation. Mm -hmm. And so I got the job. And everybody who was around us was kind of shocked, including this this cinematographer who expected to get the job. And, and also because I was a girl. I was like, you know, who are you? And you haven't done anything. And how are you getting this job? And and I never really, really I never really thought of things that way. I yeah. just thought of this is a really interesting idea. And how do we make this? How do we explore this idea on camera? So that's, you know, how Swoon began. We had very little prep. We had no money. We shot for 10 days on $14,000. What? Really? Really. Oh, my God. And that's on film. Crazy. On film, we used my Ari SR2. So it was regular 4.3 framing. Yeah. You know, Super 16 was just coming around at that particular point. But I had two lenses. I had two zooms. And we didn't even have money for a doorway for a regular dolly. We had a doorway dolly, so that film was made on so little. The biggest lights I had were two two Ks. <laughs> I one I had a one five K. That's it. Oh, nice. So it was all tungsten. It was all. But it's know, black and white, so the color doesn't is not as crucial in that in that right, kind of a scenario. Right. But shooting Swoon taught me a lot about how to do a lot with a little. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that I see that in cinematography today. A lot of cinematographers that I knew, they'll think about how to do a lot with a little because, you know, it's, it's, it's more streamlined. It's how do you get to the point? How can you make something simply beautiful yeah. rather than, you know, spending six hours of, your, of the time lighting when, you know, you can get a result with a simpler way well and with modern technology you know it, it's probably a lot more possible but also back then you're shooting on film so you don't really know what it looks like till it comes back till you see the dailies well that's really a funny story because tom and i were actually talking about it the other day because i'm shooting something for him right now oh wow yeah so we it goes full circle but we were talking about that and i said you know i i didn't really know that much about dailies and that kind of idea because i i mean in documentary you would get them on on film and you would look at them on the steam bag but you know in features it's a little bit different so i asked uh, an old friend of mine and a dp that i had been an electrician under frank prinzi i called up frank and i said so frank um so how do you know you're not screwing up i mean it's <laughs> You know how? What's my guide? I don't even. I don't even know. I mean, I have my Polaroid camera that I was using at the time, yeah. which had a Polaroid back. Um, I said, but I, you know, I don't know. He said, Oh, don't worry. He said, 
you you know, just every day you're going to get your dailies, look at your dailies with the director, and then you can see where you need to make adjustments, mm-hmm. which is all fine and good if you have the money to develop. Yeah. We didn't have money to develop the negative until three weeks after we finished shooting. <laughs> you know, so you live and you learn to trust your intuition. And that's another thing that I think was really important for me to learn on Swoon is we didn't have a video tap. There was no way for Tom to see what I was seeing unless he looked through the viewfinder and also to gauge performance. So we would do a take and he would look at me and he would say, how was that, El? And I'd say, we have it. And just go like, okay, great. Check the gate and move on. Wow. So sometimes we were doing one take or some, most of the times two and three takes and that's it. So I learned very quickly that absolute trust between the DP and the director is a must Mm -hmm. because you need to be able to be almost one mind. Like my role as a cinematographer was to get into the head of the director to try and realize the vision and even more and to try and and help the director to shape the vision in a way that was meaningful and that you know could could tell the story uh, was it was it surprising you to you at the time that swoon which was made on such a mo- modest budget on such a tight schedule ended up kind of becoming a a big deal in the indie film world were you even aware of the indie film world at the time being that that was your first narrative feature no not at all and we ended up shooting four more days we we mm-hmm. you know by hook or crook we got four more days and no i had i i had no idea uh until we went to sundance and i had seen a print i'd seen the first answer print and then we had to make an adjustment on the answer print so i didn't see the second answer print before it went to sundance because oh, wow. you know it's such quick turnaround so I went to Sundance. Of course, Sundance was a much smaller festival. Yeah, like at what that did point. Sundance mean? That's like 1990 or 91, right? Yeah. yeah so Sundance 19, hadn't even 1990, been. 1992, by the time the film came out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so what did it mean to be at Sundance? Was it already pretty prestigious? Uh, it was prestigious. It was very much, but it was a very small, uh, much more intimate festival. Yeah. And, and Sundance was kind of the festival, much more than other festivals like South by Southwest didn't come into really into its own until many, many years later. Yeah, I mean, Tribeca, Sundance like, was yeah. kind of the indie uh, Tribeca yeah. like 20 years later. Yeah, yeah. You know, so again, you know, I wasn't really in that world yet. I was just making this film with this filmmaker, Tom Kalin, who yeah. became my friend. So we couldn't even get, oh, I was, so I was on the bus on my way to go to Main Street in Park City from the hotel and somebody was sitting on the bus with a little button that said swoon. Oh, and wow. I go, oh, I go, oh, wow, that uh, swoon, that movie. I said, have you seen it? And they said, yeah. They said, have you seen it? I said, no, not yet. I haven't seen it. <laughs> I said, how is the print? You know? <laughs> so we, you know, we went, it was the first time I did Q&As. And uh-huh. I was really amazed how people responded to the film. But uh, well, there just the wasn't awards, anything like that, really, at no, the time. And no, I, I, I sort of feel like. Way. There's even a certain amount of, I mean, I, I hate to equate filmmaking with bravery because you're not like, you know, fighting a war, you know, but but that period of time, you know, homophobia was pretty rampant and just kind of normalized in the world. So to make a movie that was so not that, uh, that that kind of flew in the face of that, I think, you know, does it requires some serious balls to to make something to make a movie like that in that climate. But in, but in order to change the climate, you have to make movies like that, I think. Yeah, I I think it maybe was interesting that Tom 
was gay and brought a gay perspective and that I'm, I'm, I happen to be straight and I brought it, you know, a different perspective to it. Mm-hmm. So I think the combination of both of our perspectives was, you know, about story and, and these characters and how to bring something out about the characters. Yeah. And for me in cinematography, it was a, it was a discovery. You know, I was, I was playing around with the light. It was the first time I was actually using light in a different way. I was using light to create a certain kind of language. So, like I said, you know, I went back to before we started shooting and looked at different references and I realized that I was really drawn to Joan of Arc and Carl Dreyer. And I started looking at that work and for me that became my kind of um, thumbnail reference of how I wanted this film to look. Oh, wow. So, and then the other thing is that we ended up blowing up to 35 and there was something that happened within the blow up of the 16 millimeter to 35 that the blacks became more velvety and the whites started to halate a bit and it gave it a certain kind of, you know, there was a certain kind of quality that that it gave to the film. So when we in, were- in a, in a positive way? In a very positive way, yeah. And so when we were at Sundance, we couldn't get tickets to the awards ceremony. I mean, we were nobody, you know, I yeah. mean, who are we? So we snuck into the back, um, <laughs> in the back door after the ceremony had already started. And we were sitting there with our gin and tonics drinking. And that was myself, Tom and Christine in the back row. Oh, wow. And and all of a sudden, out of the blue, we hear my name being called. And the winner for cinematography is Ellen Curris. And all of a sudden, it was like, if somebody could have done a, put a zoom lens on me and zoomed into my face, I would have the most shocked look on my face. That's bananas. That's awesome, yeah. though. Yeah. So I went up there and, and, you know, I was really in awe that, you know, people would, that they understood what we were trying to do. And so that kind of put my career in a much different place. I was approached by a lot of agents mm-hmm. and, and suddenly my career changed right at that point. But I still kept to the idea that I wanted to make films that meant something, that could say something. Yeah. So it wasn't like I was going to drop everything and move to Hollywood. I still wanted to make meaningful films. Mm-hmm. So what was your next move after that? As as a DP, uh, what I mean, I don't have your IMDb open in front of me. The next movie in your filmography that I'm very familiar with is I Shot Andy Warhol. But right, we did a film in between that, mm-hmm. which was uh, about da- the artist David Wonorovich. Mm-hmm. So there was a English director who was another gay director, and it was with Christine. And that's often what happens is that you know you you start this family so to speak, of yeah. filmmakers, and you end up working together. And, and and that's one of the reasons why it was able to work, because there was a, a sense of trust and, and understanding, you know, between all of us. So this film was called um, Postcards from America, and it was about the later life of David Wonorovich. Mm-hmm. And um, he was a very well-known artist in New York who died of AIDS in 1986. So it was another one of these art films of how do we make this this film on basically zero money. But that film actually started a lot of relationships for me because my gaffer who was on Swoon wasn't able to do this other film. So I was introduced to my gaffer for the first time, longtime gaffer John Nadeau, who I worked with then for 23 years. Oh, wow. You know, so we had a long-term relationship. We met the best boy, Simone Perus, who still works very much as a best boy and a, a board operator until she was stolen by Bob Richardson. <laughs> um, 
you know, she worked, we worked together. I still work with Simone. I mean, for years and years and years. And so there was a family of people who started to come together. And um, so we did that film and then, which was a very small film. And then we went on to do I Shot Andy Warhol. Yeah. So, and I Shot Andy Warhol was with the production, same production designer who did Swoon, who also did Postcards from America, uh, Therese Desprez, who has, she passed away about two years ago. Um, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, so it was, it, she became also was part of that whole inner family. So we all started to work together. So I shot Andy Warhol. I remember seeing that in the theater and it was kind of an event movie. And it was interesting because I feel like it was actually kind of a landmark in gay cinema in that it's, it, it is a gay movie, but it's really kind of a crime story. It's it, it, like the, the gayness is obviously baked into the story because it's Andy Warhol and, and the people in the factory. But, but also like for you, was that like the first time you'd had to evoke like serious period piece and like recreate a world that we'd actually already seen represented in film we'd seen it in other films and we'd also seen it in Warhol's own films well that was that was a challenge for me is to go back and and look at some of Andy's old films because we were actually featuring one of the his films in the film you know that Billy Name had shot so yeah. I was like okay am I going to reference this or how do I want this to look in terms of the period of the time and people remembered that time of the of the factory you yeah. know and so how how am I going to be able to capture this well first of all I just thought I I have to give it a sense of of the edgy in some ways but I also knew that I I wanted it to feel like a, a bigger movie I wanted it to have the story to have a more epic quality to it totally does so even though we shot it on 1.6 million dollars which wow. was nothing yeah, at the yeah. time you know, for me, it was about talking with the production designer, Therese Desprez, in great depth about the kind of things she was going to do with practicals, the production design, um, how I was going to light it was a really big thing. And so I, I talked a lot with my my gaffer about kind of unconventional lighting, like doing skid bounces and, and you know, putting light in, in unconventional ways. Yeah. So I was playing around with it as well. I wasn't getting all wrapped up into what I should do. I was getting, you know, much more intrigued with what I wanted to do and how I could be more playful with the light. So when Valerie Solanas first walks through the factory, you know, there's people being drugged out and that kind of thing. So I started experimenting with taking fluorescent lights and and letting them flicker in the in the shot. Yeah, You know, I was starting to mix the light in different ways. Because normally, when you thought about film, everybody in color film, photography, everybody was either all tungsten or all daylight and you had to match everything. So everything had to be consistent. Like the light couldn't be one color or another. And so, but I was playing around with it. And I, I thought, well, I'm going to mix it here because it gives me a certain kind of feeling to it. And, and there was one scene in particular, which I remember that we went into the, it was the former DIR Foundation, and I had no way to light it. I mean, we didn't have condors. I mean, we didn't have the money for condors. I think I had yeah. a condor one night. Wow. And we got into this one place and I thought, I'm, I don't know how I'm going to light this. It was when she goes into the empty factory again and she gets all upset because they've all left. And I thought, oh, okay, the thing I'm going to do is I'm going to let it be what it is. I'm going to let her be silhouette. I'm just going to fill the whole place with smoke. <laughs> and so 
that's what I did. And it has a completely other ethereal feeling to it, yeah, which yeah. really was appropriate for that moment. That's awesome. And I mean, I remember seeing that movie and I don't think I had the vocabulary to understand exactly what it was that was so eye-catching about it and so different, but it did have a different feeling and it doesn't feel like a, a compromised, it doesn't feel like it was budget compromised. You can see movies that feel like, oh yeah, they wanted to do X, but they only had you know 0.5 X to do it with. And that's your third feature as cinematographer as well. So right. like that's a giant jump from $14,000 on Swoon to, I don't know what your second budget was, but then to a, a million and a half. So, I mean, you know, at, at least is like, you know, you haven't, you, you're able to have enough of the toys there to, to make it look, you know, I mean, like, I think that movie, I, I saw that movie again, I don't know, maybe like three or four years ago. And I feel like it really holds up. Like, like it looks amazing. It looks sharp. It looks, you know, it's, it's, it's a suspenseful, awesome uh, movie. Well, for us, it was a big leap up because we went to 35 millimeter. It uh -huh. was the first film that I shot. Oh, was it really? Five, you know. So for me, it were was... you doing like commercials or music videos or anything else? That no, were... they didn't have music videos then. They didn't. <laughs> they were starting to do music videos then. I mean, uh -huh. this was, yeah. I mean, the music videos started in the eighties, but it wasn't as the nineties are really when music videos were huge. So no commercials. I mean, I didn't start doing commercials until nineteen. 95 which oh, is wow. actually not that far yeah, away it's like from a year that or two after that yeah. Right? yeah yeah but i mean you know it was i was still very much in the independent world and new york was different than the west coast mm -hmm. you know we were very much um as new yorkers are you know very scrappy and putting things together and yeah and trying to you know put a film together that looked like something so, you know, the fact that we had a little bit more equipment helped, I think, but the fact that we were shooting 35 really made a difference. So how, I, I, again, I, I, I feel like we could do a half hour on every one of your films, but I'm going to jump a little bit forward to how both Spike Lee and Michel Gondry come into your orbit, because you, you did multiple collaborations with them. It seems like you tend to collaborate with a lot of the same directors multiple times anyway. But uh, both of those people, known for a very specific visual approach and a certain way that they run a, run a show, how did those two people come into your life? And, and if you can talk a little bit about the beginnings of your collaborations with them. Yeah, um, it, and it's very true what you say, is that they both have very different styles and different approaches and how they approach their material. As like Rebecca Miller, who I did three films with, and Rebecca and I were very much about prep. So she and I would, you know, go through the script and we would write extensive shot lists. What were the three films you did with her? Um, I did the first one was Angela, which mm. I won the cinematography award for at Sundance. Sweet. The second one was Personal Velocity, which I also won. Another one I really wanted to talk to you about. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Personal Velocity, which was, you know, the first digital film to win Best Cinematography at Sundance uh, for doing what I was not supposed to do. That's how I won. Well, <laughs> actually, I want to back up for a second here because we've had on, on the show, we've had both Shane Hurlbut and Brandon Trost. Both, like, Shane was kind of behind the DSLR push uh, maybe 10 years ago with yeah. Active Valor. Uh, yeah. Brandon uh, did Crank 2, but before them, you made, uh, I think, the first two digital features I saw in a theater, uh, Bamboozled for Spike Lee and Personal Velocity, which can I, it sold me a PD-150, uh, because if I'm not mistaken, you shot that on a PAL PD-150. That's right. That's right. Yeah, so when Spike wanted to do Bamboozled, I can distinctly remember, he called me at midnight uh, one night, and I happened to be awake, and I'm... Um, he gets on the phone and he's like, Alan, I want to do this film. 
And I'm like, okay, you know, let's do it because we, we had already made, you know, several films together. And he said, but I want to shoot it with those little cameras. And I said, what little cameras? He says, those little cameras, those, those video cameras. I want to shoot and I want to shoot a lot of them. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, Alan, you got to do it. So, you know, I had to educate myself about what it meant to shoot with this new medium, mini DV. I mean, I had shot high eight for my own film before and I knew, you know, the, it was a, it, it, the imagery was compromised, you know, when you look at next to 16 millimeter or 35 millimeter, you know, so, so I said to Spike, all right, you know, let's talk about it. And ideally he wanted to have many cameras on set at the same time. So that was the idea. And the only way that we could do that and not see each other was to use these mini DV cameras. So it was just because the cameras themselves are tiny. Tiny and, you know, you didn't need an operator. You could lock it off. You know, looking back to Bamboozled and looking at the film, we actually shot, you know, with I think five or six cameras at any given time. Some of them were the even the smaller cameras because he really wanted to experiment with the multiple perspectives. Mm -hmm. So I convinced him to at least shoot some of the material on the stage, which was the dance material with Savian Glover to shoot it in film. And I said, let's do a comparison in the film to see you know, what the difference is. But working with these small cameras was really frustrating to me because the locations that we had were white walls with African-American actors. And we were in this real business office on the 30th floor that looked out onto the north side of Manhattan, which of course is the sun side. <laughs> so there was no way, and I couldn't rig anything in the room. So it was very, very hard to control the image. And I was frustrated a lot of the times because with these cameras, the at that time, the lenses themselves did not resolve well. So the glass was not precise enough so that when you went on a wide angle lens, it looked like it was out of focus. And it's just because the, the lenses couldn't make it sharp enough. So it's, it was not a real Not to mention that the, the resolution itself is so low. Yeah, the resolution was so low. So Which cameras were you using for that? Not to get too techy about it. We were using the DVX 1000s. Oh, okay. Right? So like that's the first one, really. Yes, the first one. The first real one. And, you know, we didn't even have monitors. You had to look at those little flip monitors to and see the suck. focus. Yeah. And you couldn't, I mean, everybody who's ever used those cameras knows that the biggest challenge was the focus. So yeah. The only so, thing working know, in your favor is how tiny the sensor is. So more is in focus than isn't, but it's so it, hard to tell. Exactly. So for when um, Rebecca came to me and she said she wanted to do this film called Personal Velocity, and it was for this uh, organization called Indigent, which was a small group of filmmakers who got together who got grants to enable certain people like certain actors or writers who wanted to do a directing job, who wanted to try and direct their own film. So they only gave $150,000 for these films. And I was like, oh, really? Yeah. I go. But they did like Tadpole and Pieces of April exactly. and uh, Starting Out in the Evening and a few others. Exactly. So the big thing was is that we had to use these small cameras. And I, I said to Rebecca, let's just use Super 16. I said, you know, I'll put some money into it. Let's just do it. And she <laughs> says, no, we can't. You know, we, we have to use these cameras. That's part of the deal. The Didge from Indigent is digital. Ugh. Independent digital entertainment. Exactly. So those were the PD-150s. So we shot in PAL. And I thought to myself, and, and I think this is really important for thinking about how you approach material and how you approach 
all the crazy resolution that's going on right now, the, the obsession with the resolution and everything. Oh, yeah. And I thought to myself, okay, here we are. Personal Velocity is basically a series of three short stories about these different characters. It's it, there's smaller films. I started thinking, well, they're like short stories. So this medium is already, you know, very compromised medium for me. I was thinking I can't, you know, I, I knew what the limitations were of the medium. And, and I thought, well, I'm not going to get frustrated by this. I'm just going to use it for what it is. I'm going to say, okay, these are small cameras. It's like shooting a, a short story. So I'm I'm going to use the, I'm going to try and trick the medium and do different things with it that people that you don't do. Mm-hmm. So everybody t- and so I had to do research about you know how these cameras work because because again it's like here I am you know dealing with the wide angle problem and all of that kind of stuff. So everybody was saying oh you have to use these attachments you have to use the four three. I was like why would I want to bother with these attachments right They're going to drive me nuts. <laughs> I can't be in direct relationship to what's going on. But by then you could have an, a monitor out at least. <laughs> uh, I could have a monitor. And that yeah. was one of the things that I said to Rebecca. I said, whatever happens, I have to have a monitor next to me so I can check focus. Yeah. So both me and Martina Rodwan, who's the beat camera operator, we, most of the times, we're not even looking at the action. We're looking at the monitor next to us and, and focusing with our hand. But the other thing is I got Rebecca not to do any wide angle shots. We had to shoot it in shadow. Mm-hmm. But these are all big, you know, requirements for yeah. them. Also, I decided I wasn't going to follow the norm and shoot it at 150th of a shutter. I was going to shoot it at 125th because it looked better to me. And yeah, I it's thought, like impressionistic. Yeah, and it, and it made it feel less video. And, yeah. But I cannot tell you how much flack I got from the companies who were doing the film out because they said, oh, well, you're losing, so, you're losing information. I said... Well, how much information am I losing? One field? I said, how many pixels is that? I said, it's already compromised. I said, I wanted to look and feel the way I wanted to f- to feel. Yeah. Right. So, and I started blowing things out. I started tricking the white balance. I put lots of film filters on it. I did, you know, and people were like, oh, you can't do that. And I said, watch me. <laughs> so that really taught me a lesson because at the end of the day, when it won the best cinematography, People said to me, oh, it's so beautiful. I mean, how did you do that? And I said, I didn't listen to anybody. You know, I, <laughs> I you know, did what I thought. Did you, you know? do a lot of testing or anything before you, you arrived at all that? You know, like figuring uh, out which filters testing. and stuff? Yeah, some testing. But ultimately, it was about following my gut. Mm-hmm. You know, learning to listen to my inner voice. That's the same thing on Swoon. I mean, I didn't, I, the only thing I had to go on was my intuition. And that's something that everybody forgets about. They think about, they get so involved with what they think they're supposed to do rather than listening to their inner voice. Because that's what makes you an individual filmmaker is that voice that you have, that that's kind of the culmination of all of the experience that you've had in your life, all the films that you've seen, all the things that you've felt. Can you talk a little bit also about, about Michel Gondry? Just because to me an outrageously visionary filmmaker, but he'd made one film before you worked with him on uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which was 
the one with Reese, human nature, human nature with Reese mm-hmm. Fons and uh, and Patricia Arquette. Right. Um, but then you come along on on Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and as I recall from ICG magazine or wherever I read about it, he basically said you can only use the kinds of lights that would actually be used. So like you know you could gang up street lights, but you couldn't use it. You couldn't throw an HMI on a condor and, and simulate moonlight like you were use you were using regular fixtures for all the lights. And his style is so inventive, and it sounds like you are so open to invention and so excited about invention yourself like how did that all come about well i didn't know really that much about michelle and michelle had his work was mainly involved with music videos and so i had looked at his music videos but so because he's his his concerns his creative concerns had to do with time and space and Mm -hmm. and not the quality of the image you know i thought ugh. You know, it's like, I don't want to, uh, you know, after having struggled with the image and bamboozled and then, you know, trying to make something of the personal philosophy, I was like, I don't want to do that. I'm not interested in making films that look like they were shot on high eight, you mm-hmm. know. So when I went in to meet him, I thought, all right, well, tell me something, you know. Oh, really? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> okay, you know, I, I, I really wanted to hear what he had to say about his ideas. And interestingly, I didn't realize this about human nature because I had seen human nature, but I didn't realize that Michelle was his approach to eternal sunshine was in direct reaction to human nature. Oh, really? Yes, because human nature was all about the stage. It was all artificial, which was part of the point of the film. But I think he was tired of waiting for lights and that kind of thing, as Uh a lot of directors are. And he wanted everything to be organic. That was his motto for mm-hmm. for Eternal Sunshine. But I said to him, I said, you know, I mean, we're shooting on film. There's things I have to do. I have to light it. I mean, I'm not going to not like this film. I'm not going to shoot it just as is. It's, it's, it's not going to work. I have to light it. So we had a big fight about it in the very beginning. Oh, really? And he was really mad at me. He was like, Ellen, you know, you don't want to listen to me. And I said, no, I just, I'm just telling you, you know, what I think really needs to be done. So on the first day of dailies, well, the first day of shooting, you know, he really didn't want me to use any lights. And I said, look, I have to use lights. I'm, I've Kate Winslet and Jim Carrey. I have to light yeah. them, you know, to a certain extent. I have to, first of all, I have to get an exposure on the film, on yeah. the negative. He says, well, you can push it. I said, well, I've already pushed it. It's already pushed one stop. I'm not going to push it two stops. So I said, all right, fine. You know, so I, I thought, all right, I'm just going to show you. So I said, it's going to be dark. D-A-R-K. It's going to be dark. So the first day of dailies, expect it. So sure enough, the first day of dailies we looked at and, you know, exterior, night exterior, and it was dark. And he came to me and he says, oh, he says, oh, Ellen is is very dark. And I go, yeah, D-A-R-K, dark. I go, I'm going to use lights. I'm going to use whatever lights. I said, I totally understand that you don't want to use all of these film lights and get so involved in it. I said, but let me try to do it my way. If you let me do it my way, I promise you, I you won't be waiting, you won't be overwhelmed by all the film experience. I'll try to do it as organically as possible. So I did, you know, so we did things like, we cut holes out of lampshades, out of the backside, and we would turn the lampshade around mm-hmm. so I could get a little bit more light on the character. Um, I used so lots. were you the one who came up with the idea of using the kind of lights that would be on the location? Was, oh yeah, I mean I had concept. to. 
I mean, it was it was kind okay, of. Okay, I always had it. I always yeah. had it backwards because I I always thought that that was a restriction that was put on you, but that's the restriction you added to the project. No, he. It was a restriction I had. I mean, he didn't want to use foam lights, but really, I mean, yeah, no, that was it. He didn't want to use foam lights. Hmm. So I, you know, instead of getting mad, I was like, okay, you know, I had good humor. I, I, I said to the grips at a certain point, we built this light, which was a C stand with five clip lights on it. And I called it my mini Moscow. And I'm like, all right, bring the mini Moscow guys. You know. But it was challenging being in a real space and trying to light it and not use all the lamps. You know, yeah. so I came up with this idea of hiding little light bulbs on little mini dimmers that were around the room. So using refrigerator bulbs oh, that wow. are long and that you could hide. So we were constantly hiding lights all around. But the challenge of, of you doing that and in it, and the way that I block the film, because we were using two cameras all the time, mm -hmm. and I decided I didn't want to do two A and B camera. I wanted the cameras to be talking to each other. So the way we were blocking the film was, I might be at one end of the room looking at Kate coming in, and I might have Chris, Nor, who was the other operator, looking at Jim, waiting for him to come down the hall. And then, you know, we would do a choreography. So I might say to, to Chris, okay, when she comes in the room, then I want you to pick Kate up and I'm going to pick Jim up. So we would do handoffs all the time. Oh, wow. And then sometimes we would actually physically move ourselves in the scene so that we wouldn't see each other and that we could get a better angle on the shot. Hmm. So the entire film, except for one shot, was handheld. Wow. It's got to be exhausting, too, with those film cameras. They weren't small with Michel Gondry stuff too like he tends to do everything in camera like he's not doing a lot of uh, a lot of fuckery with with visual effects after the unless it can't be done any other way so did that influence kind of the way you were choreographing your camera moves or did that influence uh, oh yeah very much choices? so yeah 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 Michel is very much um, a visionary in terms of you know trying to play with the trickery of the camera and the idea again of time and space and, and planes and that kind of thing so for me, it was great to be able to dive into all of that together because I saw a lot of experimental films when I was first starting out. I was yeah. just really in intrigued by Blood of a Poet, you know, and yeah. the little effects that they did in there, you know, and it's like, how do, how do we make this happen on camera without relying upon effects? Yeah. So it became a, a, a constant discussion with us throughout the whole film about how we were going to show that it wasn't an effect that was done later on. Yeah, so yeah. sometimes Michelle would push me while I was hand holding so that you could see the shake in the camera so it didn't look like it was locked <laughs> off, you know. And and were you expecting the push? Was it like I'm gonna no, I'm no, gonna shove you <laughs> You're just rolling in. So but but part of you know his genius was very much about envisioning um how to organically set up for um some effect. So there were some shots that we did that would that we would put everything in process in the production design and everything. So that it was actually, you know, all in camera or there were certain tweaks that they would make later on. So, you know, it was to me, it was a great way of of showing metaphor of a certain kind of story on the screen. And Michelle really understood that. 
Yeah, I mean, that movie, I mean, uh, Charlie Kaufman's written some amazing scripts. That's my favorite Charlie Kaufman movie. And and, and also yeah. Michel Gondry, who, like, I first was aware of him when he'd done a music video for Massive Attack called Protection, right. which uses a lot of the same kind of trickery in that it's like you're looking at, at outside of a building and pushing into rooms. But if you pay any attention to it, you realize it's looking straight down and just booming down into these various rooms and everything is very intricately staged. So let's talk about Spike Lee. And uh, so how did you end up in Spike Lee's orbit? I mean, he's one of the most noteworthy filmmakers of, of his generation and maybe maybe of all time. And, and, you know, he'd already done Do the Right Thing and some of the stuff that he was best known for. How did you end up working with him? Well, my agent at the time was going out with John Killick, who was Spike's producer. Mm -hmm. And so Jen you know, recommended me to John and said, you know, maybe you should try and use this young cinematographer who's up and coming. And so Spike, <laughs> this is funny. I mean, Spike called me about doing Get on the Bus, mm -hmm. right? Which was a film uh, largely about a group of African-American guys who get on this, on this bus and they have this bus trip. So uh, you know, I had never met Spike before, and I went to go see him. I guess he was mixing clockers at the time or something like that. And so I, I met Spike, and of course, you know, I look like blonde hair and, and as, you know, as white as they can be, and came <laughs> in to meet with Spike, and Spike was like, hey, you know, how's it going? We sat down, and he says, you think you can do this film? And I said, yeah, I think I can do this film. I said, the only thing I'm really worried about is, is the time of prep, because, you know, I'd only have a week and a half of prep because I'm on a, a different movie before then and I'm just worried that I'm not gonna have enough time to do what we need to do, especially if you're on a bus. And he goes, he goes, Ellen, he goes, he goes, well, you know, you're gonna be on a bus with a lot of black men. Are you okay with that? And I said, I go, well, are they cute? <laughs> and so ever since then, I mean, we've been really close. I mean, Spike and I, I'd do anything for Spike, you know, mm -hmm. and he, and likewise for me. And he's asked me numerous times to do his other films, which I haven't been able to lately. But then he came around and he asked me to do Four Little Girls. And I was very, very much into doing that film because I couldn't do Get on the Bus, but I did do Four Little Girls. And it was a film about the 1966 18th Street uh, bombing in Alabama. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we really connected on that. I mean, I, I was really moved by the whole experience, by by the interviews and, and just by being brought into the fold, so to speak, and was completely accepted as as a a fellow muse in the in a way. Yeah. And that's it's when Spike made me an honorary sister, which <laughs> you know, I hold near and dear to my heart. But um so then we did Summer of Sam and Summer of Sam was a huge challenge because it was a much bigger film and we were shooting it in 35 all photochemical again yeah and i knew that you know he wanted to make it different than do the right thing so again it was new york in the summer hot he said ellen i i need to feel like this is hot and i said i thought to myself all right well i'm not going to do the i don't want to copy ernie dickinson and put hard backlights i'm going to yeah. do something different so i I, I kind of looked into my own experience, having grown up in New York City, basically, you know, New Jersey and New York. And for me, when I think about summers in New York, what do I think about? Humidity, you know, sweltering in humidity. And yeah. I thought, I'm going to take that tact. 
So I decided I would flash the film or I would, I, I wanted it to feel humid. I wanted the blacks to feel more open and so that it would compare and contrast with some of the cross-process material that we were going to do. So I did a lot of tests for this film. They, they had this thing called um, flexi flash or whatever it is, where you'd put a device in front of the camera and you could, you could haze out the filter to make it feel like there was, there was haze oh, in wow. the air. But I knew that we were going to be doing a lot of stuff at night and that I would get triple and quadruple headlights going through these filters. So I decided I would pre-flash everything. So I ended up pre-flashing all the night exterior film. So it all had to go to the lab first where they pre-flashed it in the lab. And I did test about the amount. Wow. And then we shot, which was essentially exposed film already because they had to expose it. Yeah, you can't unring that bell. Like that's to me, like that's something that like uh, people who are growing up in the digital world will never appreciate because you can probably just dial in and resolve the that look. But for you, you had to like you're married to the look from the moment you from from the moment they flash it. That's what you're going to get. Exactly. So it's a much different world now in the digital realm where you can actually do things in post. Um, So the big thing with that film is that, you know, Spike is a kind of director where he really encourages experimentation. So he wanted me to really experiment with shutters, with the film stock, yeah. with doing that big long first shot that we did that takes you into the into the film and into the nightclub with John Leguizamo. You know, it starts out with Larry McConkie um, on a, a steady cam on a Titan crane, and he steps off the crane and he goes through the crowd. So he really wanted to experiment a lot with also encouraged me with the lighting. So I started doing things when we, when we started doing the murders, I ordered another camera, uh, a third camera that I would always have standing by for me, mm-hmm. which I started playing around with, you know, this uh, like swing and tilts to get into the, the, the murder scenes in a different way. So, you know, whenever we would do the dramatic action, then I would go in with my little camera and start shooting all of this kind of more textural stuff. And the other thing I started doing was I started playing around with the lights because I realized after the first or second murder, it becomes redundant. And like in the minds of us, because I remember that time very well, it's like one murder becomes another becomes another. It's like today when we hear about all the gun shootings in schools, you know, it becomes rote. We we get used to it. So I thought I had to make this different. I'm going to show that on screen. I'm going to make it more abstract. So the murder becomes an abstraction in our mind as well as it in visual terms. Well, in that movie too, it's like it is. It's it's called Summer of Sam. It's not really about David Berkowitz, even though he's a character in the movie. It's about right. the cultural impact of of being afraid and on edge. Exactly. So so one thing I started to do with the six Ks, the six K pars had just come out, and the twelve K pars had just come out. I mm. mean, it's crazy because it's like. We, we have new technology today with all the matte lights it's and funny everything that's going on. It doesn't feel like on. it was that long ago. <laughs> no, it's not that long ago. It really feels like yesterday. But I would take the lens out of the light so that all of a sudden you have this incredibly hard light, like a xenon light. Mm-hmm. And I was on the cross-process reversal. I was overexposing it with the light. So I would sweep the light through the scene as the guy was trying to climb out the window after the girl had been murdered. Uh-huh. And it almost becomes like a negative of itself. So playing around with that during the riots and all of that kind of stuff. So, so you know, for me, Summer of Sam was one of those, the most creative films I've ever done because I, would, I had 
you know, an open an open book. I mean, I could do whatever I wanted to do, and Spike was very much encouraging that. Well, and I feel like Spike Lee kind of makes, I mean, he, he does more than this. He makes documentaries, and then he makes smaller movies uh, for, a, for a specific audience, and then he'll make movies like Inside Man or Summer of Sam that I think are more designed for a broad audience. Was uh, at that time was that probably the largest release of a movie that you'd done? Was that like the bigger one of the bigger movies you'd made? Summer of Sam, yeah, at that time, yeah, yeah. It was it was actually a Disney film. I'd done studio films before. I did The Mod Squad and I did Just oh, a that's Ticket. Right. Yeah, I that's mean, right. crazy when I think about those. So, you know, each film was kind of a, a stepping stone for me. Uh, one film was the first studio film. Another film was the first, you know. Union film in New York, which yeah. had its own kind of complexities to it. But, you know, every film had its thing. But one thing I can say about Spike, uh, you know, he, like Marty, Marty Scorsese, they're auteurs. Yeah. You know, they do, they make films, you know, films of different kind of genres. You know, Marty makes documentaries. Marty makes, true. you know, dramatic films, just like Spike. And they, it's all about them, you know, you know, playing out these ideas on the screen. What's cool though is that like Spike brought you into work on a documentary and then kept you around for uh, at least two that I know of narrative features. Were there more than two? Spike is a very loyal director. I mean, Spike asked me to do the next film, but I was actually working with Rebecca and so mm-hmm. there was a conflict of schedule. So that's when he actually asked Maddie to come and work with him. And that's how Maddie and he first started to work when they were doing She Hate Me. Oh, yeah. And then he ended up doing Inside Man, I think, right? Then he did Inside Man after that. Yeah. Yeah. But Spike would always ask me first if I would do a film. I mean, he still asked me to do the last film he did. He asked me to do Black Clansman, but I couldn't do it. It's it's a matter of, of scheduling and that kind of thing. But Spike is one of those very, very loyal directors you know, he's worked with the same editor for his whole career, Barry Alexander Brown, who you guys interviewed, with, yeah, was for, his editor. Yeah, we interviewed him for Black Klansman. Ilya did. Uh, when uh, when I, when I became a dad, I kind of took a year off of conducting interviews. So uh, the other big project, and, and like if you've listened to our podcast, we do short ends. And one of my short ends one time, uh, which is like our pet obsession of the week, uh, mine was Wormwood. And it's, uh-huh. it's, it's partly my, uh, my lifelong obsession with Errol Morris and, and his, I, I, I kind of love all of his work. Fast, Cheap and Out of Control is probably in my top three of all time. Mm-hmm. Like it's just a brilliant movie. But like him making a movie about a CIA uh, related conspiracy involving, you know, psychedelics and all that stuff, him doing it was sort of like you dreamed up a project that I would want to watch in, in a laboratory. And then when I saw your name on it, I was like, wow. Now, I've always assumed that he had one person shooting the uh, interviews and you shooting the I, I, you can't even really call them reenactments. They're just dramatic scenes, basically. Is that how it was broken up? No, actually, it was quite the opposite because Errol in the beginning of this of this project um wasn't really sure how he wanted to approach it visually mm-hmm. right because a lot of his other films had been done with the interrotron right which was yeah. basically a setup where he could interview the subject and his picture or his image would be over the lens of the shooting camera so that the person who's being interviewed looked straight into the lens it's basically 
right. two teleprompters and instead of having text, you just had a camera as Correct. one of the other teleprompters. Exactly. Exactly. And I said to Errol when I, we were talking about this story, when he came to me, because I hadn't worked with him all of those years for various reasons, but um, I'd always been an admirer of his work. And I, I you know, again, I, I, I really am drawn to intellectual filmmakers of a certain kind. And Errol certainly is one of those and very much about ideas and very much about politics. And so I said to him, well, what's this, you know, tell me about the story. And I was fascinated because it was about MK Ultra. Yeah. You know, all about the idea of surveillance, the CIA, how the CIA was surveilling people and trying to manipulate them through using LSD and that kind of thing. And, and, um, the more I got into the ideas of what it was about, the story, what the story was about, I thought, we're not going to use this in Terraton. I'm not doing that. You know, it's like, it doesn't make sense for this story. So I said to Errol, I said, Errol, one thing that's interesting about this story is that it's, there's one event that happened. You know, this, this guy either throws himself or gets thrown out of this hotel room, mm-hmm. right? And, and, you know, it's called suicide or it's called a murder or son is calling a murder. But there are lots of different perspectives on this event, right, of what happened, which happens to us in everyday life, you know, and something happens. And when you interview people who are down the street and they try to remember, it's completely different than what the person across the other side of the street saw. Yeah. So I said, I think it would be really interesting if we could show that visually, the fact that there are many points of view um, about this story. And I also find it interesting that it would be interesting to challenge the notion of documentary, the interviewer and the interviewee. What if we put into question, who's doing the interviewing? Where mm-hmm. are they? So, cause the picture I had in my head was a one of Eric sitting there and you see him through a doorway and we're, it's a, a wide shot in a sense and you see him through a doorway. It's like, who's he talking to? It's a documentary interview, but we don't know who he's talking to, right? So who are we then observing? So it all becomes about the observed and the observe who's being observed and how they're being observed. So the idea of surveillance and, and this idea of, to me, surveillance and listening in becomes more real. So, you know, we were talking about locations and and I, I was just like, I tend to be very opinionated. I was like, I don't want to go into some empty space. I said, let's give the location uh, a character. Let's let the location be meaningful to what we're trying to say. So I said, you know, there's lots, he lives in Cambridge. So I said, there's lots of abandoned factories around Massachusetts, which is kind of indicative of the old, the past, the the failure of the industrial age in that area. Yeah. I said, let's go find an interesting location like that and use it meaningfully. Cause it's kind of like the demise of the empire, you know, <laughs> the demise of how do we show that in terms of the government, you know, we're talking yeah. about the government and, and its citizens and, and spying on the citizens and manip- manipulating them. So he's like, great, cool, you know, let's do that. So we started looking at different locations around and and the location scout took it to this one former book bindery uh, newspaper place in, in Lynn, Massachusetts. And the moment we walked upstairs into this floor, I was like, this is fantastic because it was kind of abandoned just as it was. You know, they almost didn't clean up the stuff. It's oh, like, wow. You know, the employees just stood up and left. And so when we got to this floor... This the fifth floor of this building, and the that paneling 
I was like, oh my God, it just I assumed is it was so a set. reminiscent. I assumed that you guys built that. No, no, no. It was a real place. Oh, wow. And the fact that the windows were there so that the the people could spy on, on the windows. And, and there was another part of that factory where, you know, down below with the newspaper men where the 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 bosses could spy on their employees. And I was like, we have to shoot this here. It's inf- incredible because you could do, you know, windows upon windows and reflections and oh, all wow. of that kind of stuff. So that's how that all started is with the multiple cameras. It was How many meaningful. cameras were you rocking? I mean, it, it seemed like there was always a beautiful angle in the interviews. And honestly, I prepared myself to talk about the reenactment. So this is like, uh, yeah. Th- yeah. this is a revelation, but, but like watching it, like every shot was frame it and put it on the wall beautiful and i'm like how are these cameras not even in each other's shots like how are you keeping it like we, that we really had to work carefully to do that i had um there was a camera operator who was from boston sky nathan who was great who we would work together to set up the cameras so that we would have i think we had seven cameras running at the same time all the time so the thing about what happened with the scripted um parts of it there was another dp named igor who came in to do the scripted part because after so long, I mean, it took five years for Errol to do that film. Oh, really? Yeah. So we did the interviews over a year whenever he had time and we could get the interview. Oh, wow. I assumed that it because I, because it was in, released by Netflix, I just kind of assumed that they have some weird alchemy that they use to, you know, rapid fire jam these projects through no, faster. No, because it was one of the first Netflix projects in the documentary oh, section. Oh, wow. I mean, it started a long time ago. So, and, but Errol and I had talked about the scripts at Park. So I said, you know, you need to, because there was no script written at that point. And I said, you know, we need, you know, we need some sort of reenactment. I think it would be interesting to reenact the moment that this happens and to have it change in different times. Yeah. So you could change, you could build a set and in a way move the walls of the set so that they're different. So that whenever anybody would tell the story, the room was slightly different because they remember it differently. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> you know, so because the CIA guys had one part of the story and Eric, you know, had a different story. And, you know, so everybody was telling their different stories. So I said it would be interesting to move the set around and to do it so that we would feel that. So Errol liked the idea. And so he went off and then they had to go and write the script. So that's what took the extra time. Oh, yeah. So you just weren't available to shoot those those uh, dramatic scenes? No, I think I was doing Ozark at the time. That is the yeah. perfect transition because I wanted to yeah. talk about, I, I sort of want to end on you kind of coming for full circle in your career because you started out wanting to direct and having directed, uh, you know, documentary. And now you're still shooting, you're still DPing, but also you're directing uh, Umbrella Academy and Ozark uh, for Netflix. And I'm always interested in uh, DPs who who move into directing. How how does it feel to take your hands off of uh, the cinematography itself? Like, are there parts of it that you still want to control? Uh, you know, what is it like to have another cinematographer working for you? Do you like? Do you give them? all the leeway or are you, you know, like what, what's your method of, of working with other cinematographers? Well, for me, in, in just going back to the first couple of questions, um, for me, you know, the transition was pretty seamless because of my approach to cinematography in the first place. Cause like I said, I always came to it with looking to meaning in the script mm-hmm. and the meaning of whatever was on the page would inform me about how I was going to shoot something. So I was already used to looking at scripts in a different way, not only for their visual value, but for what they said, what their meaning was, what the dialogue was about. So I was able to make that transition pretty easily. 
And but in terms of the cinematographer, I mean, it was really interesting because the first thing that I did was um, I was asked to DP the pilot of Falling Water, and I wasn't available. And so six months later, they came back and they asked me if I would direct two episodes. And I think part of that was because we had had dinner and I told them about what my ideas were about how to deal with it, not only visually, but also tonally and that kind of thing. So with the DP, I knew the DP from before. He was a New Yorker, Richard mm -hmm. Rakowski. So he and I very much got on the same page about what the visual language was going to be, because it also part of it was already established. You know, when you're doing episodic, unless you're doing the pilot, there's already a look that's already been put into play. So for me, I very much allow people to do their work. Mm -hmm. So I trust the DP to do what they're going to do. And on that particular show, I didn't have any time to prep with him because he was shooting the whole thing. So it wasn't until Ozark that I was able to actually work with Ben to talk about shot listing and, and where we wanted to put the camera and that kind of thing. So, you know, it worked really well because I let him do his thing. He was really good at you know, being able to think about where he wants to put the camera. And of course, I would get involved in the initial setup of the master and mm -hmm. then of, you know, whatever side shot we were going to do. And then I just let them do their thing in terms of the lighting and that kind of thing. So are you mostly at that point just like working with the actors and... Yeah, very much so. And, and kind of sculpting that and, that kind of stuff. That's interesting. I just like I always wonder if it's hard to take your hands off the wheel when you're when you're so accomplished in one realm and then you move to sort of a parallel track. Well, I was actually surprised how I was able, how quickly I was able <laughs> to go like, you know what? You you know, and say, here you go. That's your problem, you know. But um, you can worry about how many Mayfer clamps we have on the truck. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Do you have this? Well, sometimes I would want to know what the equipment was. So yeah. because for me, I'm very much about blocking and mm -hmm. blocking for meaning. So I would want to know what kind of equipment we have in order to do something, or you know, whether it's a we have to order it in advance or whatever, you know, because you usually have to know those things. If you want something special that they're not carrying on the truck, you have to know what that is so that you can ask them to order that if the DP is not aware. When you talk so. about blocking for meaning, how does that change when you're previously used to like blocking the camera for meaning, probably around a scene that's of the actors being blocked, to now you're blocking the actors, presumably for meaning right. as well. Like, did, did the skills kind of go hand in hand? Was it was there a shift for you? No, definitely uh, those skills go hand in hand. And I was always a DP who was very much involved with the blocking. I'd always be with the director blocking, and mm -hmm. they trusted me enough to hear me out. You know, I mean, I would, I would be in a blocking rehearsal and watch them work. And then I would pull the director off to the side and say, hey, you know, if we do this and I can put the camera here and they can just turn and all of a sudden it goes from being a wide shot and then all of a sudden it's a close up or something, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? So playing around with the way blocking can influence tone and focus, you know, where you put the focus, where the actor comes in, all of that stuff has so much to do with the story and can change the feeling of the story and the tone of the story. So, you know, there's always ways of doing it, but with your director, but, you know, I always was very respectful to them and their time and not, it wasn't about me. I always left my ego at the door. I think that's so important is that, you know, you're already bringing your ego into it in terms of your point of view, but you don't have to announce it on set, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and the other 
big thing is I've realized in my career is that, you know, you don't have to be an asshole to be good. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> I think being an asshole is going way out of fashion because it's too easy for someone to pick up their phone and film you being an asshole and now, yeah. you know, everyone knows what an asshole oh. is. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I feel like that's something that uh, definitely seems to be recurring is like, don't be a dick. Like that seems to be what <laughs> everyone says and no matter how big or small the project is, like you still, you know, treat people well, you know. Well, this is the whole thing, you know, in the film industry, there's always been the belief that the hierarchy gives you permission to be a jerk, you know, if you're if you're in a position of power. But I mean, just make the analogy to our government, you know, make yeah. the analogy to anything. Just because you have more authority or power doesn't mean that you can treat other people like shit. You know? Yeah, yeah. No, people will take will take shit from someone who's higher up than them in anything. But yeah, I mean, you know and I mean, you know, sometimes you'll hear about people who are very, very demanding, but you can be demanding without being a jerk too. Yeah, you can be demanding creatively and artistically and push people to, you know, to find their, you know, their outer limits. But those are ways of doing it. And I, you know, I've always been very loyal to my crew and I've always protected my crew. So when I was working way back in the independent world before I was in the union, I always would write their deal uh, their rates into my deal memo before I would sign it. Oh wow. So that they wouldn't get screwed by you know by the producers who would say oh well they're your crew so they want to work with you so i was always protective of them and and i think they all know it all over the world and you know i so i know that if i call somebody up they'll be like yeah you know i'll come and work with you so it goes a long way and uh also you we wanted to talk a little bit about catch 22 which yeah. is another like epic series uh george Clooney produces that correct george george was the original director of all six six mm -hmm. episodes so catch 22 is produced by hulu through anonymous content and paramount tv mm -hmm. so and george was just was originally supposed to direct all all six um, and he was going to star in it as well. And then he decided that he wouldn't take the role of Cathcart, that he would take the role of um, Shyskov, General Shyskov, which was really funny because Shyskov means shithead. Yeah. And true to George and his incredible sense of humor, um, he decided to take that role. And then he decided to open it up. So he and his longtime partner, Grant Hesloff, uh, were going to direct three three episodes apiece. And then George thought, well, let's bring a woman's voice into this mix. And so he contacted me to come on and direct two of the episodes. So had we, you already been doing Umbrella Academy and uh, Ozark yes. at that point? Yes, yes. So he had seen Ozark, um, Umbrella Academy. I was in the middle of shooting when they called me. Um, I was in the middle of directing, actually. And um, and I said, yes, I mean, I'd love to. I'd love to come. So Steve Golan uh, from Anonymous Pictures also let... George know who I was and what I was doing, but George was familiar with my work. And um, so they invited me to come on board and to be part of Catch-22, which was, you know, it was an incredible experience because, you know, on on the surface, people would say, oh, this is, you know, a film about, you know, a bunch of men during World War II. But to me, it was a much more universal story. I didn't see it as a guy's film in particular. I saw it as a film which was about all of us and the human condition of being faced with survival yeah. and being faced with, you know, the absurdity of of government and the absurdity of people who are in positions of power and what they do with that power. And it was particularly relevant for me at the time because 
you know, with everything going on with the president administration and President Trump, mm. and I was increasingly becoming frustrated about, you know, what what we can do as as a people to be able to come to reason as as a nation and come back together. Um, you know, when George called me, I thought, oh, you know, finally I can say something about this, about people who get into positions of power and who wield it in a way that, you know, has serious negative consequences all over the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I almost feel if Catch-22 is like if Kafka wrote comedies, you know, it's right. it, it's like all, all about that kind of stuff. People always uh, confuse it. My favorite writer is Kurt Vonnegut. People always confuse, you know, Heller and Vonnegut in those regards because Vonnegut also wrote comedies sort of about World War II. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's such like when I saw that Clooney was doing it, it really did seem like a perfect fit for like his very specific sensibility that he brings as a director. Yeah, he does. He wanted to bring to it a much more cinematic point of view. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think he really did that and a certain kind of pathos as well, you know, so there's real resonance in the film and you get to know the characters in a different way. And certainly you get to know Yosarian. And also these changed the point of view. So they wanted it to be more from Yosarian's point of view. And, you know, it made me see George in a different light. You know, he, you know, he's certainly a movie star, but also, you know, he showed himself to be an incredible artist yeah. and, and, you know, really interesting director who had interesting choices and knows the camera really well. And, you know, I, I, I you know, I had a, a lot of respect for him during that shoot. So um, we need to let you go. But before we go, uh, where can people find your work online if they want to see it? Obviously, uh, just call me and I'll hook you up with, <laughs> with with my favorite hits. But what like what, are, what where can people find you have Instagram or you have a website or, you know, I, I actually just, you know, I was doing Instagram a long time ago and then I decided to take myself off of Instagram because mm. I found what I was doing is I was taking pictures for other people. I wasn't taking pictures for myself. And so, and I'm, you know, was really busy and I thought, I, you know, because I've not been a Facebook person all of these years. You're, you're not missing anything. Yeah, well, you know, when Facebook first came out and I saw the first claims on Facebook that they own all of your photographs, they own everything that you put up there. I thought, no, no I'm not going to do that. You know, yeah. I, I'd rather find my own way of communicating with people. And I know people use it to great advantage, but... I personally made that decision to step away from that social media. Kind of I feel circus. like I would get hours of my life back like every day if I was just not on social media. But I feel like also, you know, as far as self-promotion goes, you know, whatever you're working on, nothing beats it. It's the easiest way to get right to the people. Yeah, very much so. But I, I feel like I'd like to put the work out there that speaks yeah. for itself. But can people find, do you have a website where people can see your work? No, I mean, people can see my work all over the place. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, <laughs> go to Hulu, you know. Watch Catch 22, go to, go to Netflix and watch yeah, Ozark exactly. and uh, Umbrella Academy. Well, thank you so much for, for coming out. You did not disappoint. You're, I'm very excited that we, that we <laughs> got to bring I'm glad I did disappoint. No, no, no. It's, you, you, like, you were one of the names that was first floated when we were talking about doing this. And we were like, we need to work up to the point where we can ask someone of your caliber to come in. Oh. So I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been fantastic. Thanks. All right, so that was Ellen Kuras. Thank you again, a thousand times. Thank you, Ellen, for agreeing to do this. You uh, you fulfilled one of our one of our big goals for this podcast was to uh, sit down with you. Really fantastic having you on the show, and uh, I can't wait to have you on again. So, uh, Ilya, you know what time it is.
It's bill paying time. It's time to pay them bills. Hey, you know, an interesting trend in this industry has been making announcements about making announcements. It is uh, something that is now, I won't say it's a, quite a trope, but more and more big companies are doing this. They, uh, they're saying, hey, we have an announcement coming on this day. We're not going to announce anything right now. Make sure you tune in. This is all Apple's fault. Apple yeah. started this crazy bullshit and everyone else is kind of... Yeah. Well, uh, well, Aries is going to do it. Oh my <laughs> god! Yeah, coming up, it looks like uh, September tenth. If you go to the Aries.com website, you'll actually see the uh, the announcement for the announcement, which is coming uh, in a couple Sweet. of weeks. Uh, this episode will do definitely. You, do you secretly know what it is, and you can't tell me? I actually don't. I don't know I don't what know. it is, but it says it's for lighting, and Aries does have one of the most disruptive lighting products uh, in the world right now. Uh, they have several disruptive lighting products that are industry standards, but the sky panel, of course, is like the... Gotta love the sky it, panel. It's the light that which everyone else is compared and judged. So they have an announcement from the, the lighting department coming September 10th, and if you uh, want to be the first to know, log on to the Aerie website to find out where exactly and what time to be there. It does have the uh, the time zone as Central European time, so you'll have to convert that to wherever you might be. Awesome. Well, I will do that. I'm very interested to see what Aerie might be about to roll out. and Maybe in one of our future episodes, it can actually be the thing that we uh, do the ad for. Uh, I think so. But uh, until then, uh, we'll all have to wait with bated breath to find out what it is. And now, short ends. So now it is time for short ends. Ilya, what's your short end? I'm very excited about this short end in particular. I'm very, very excited. It's not every day that new cameras are launched. Uh, I've been... It feels sort of like it is kind of every day. <laughs> it does feel a little bit that way. But but here's the thing. Um, only so often is a camera really revolutionary at some level of the industry in which it makes a lot of people sit up and take notice or change what they're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as mirrorless cameras go, uh, there's a few sort of like big landmarks, probably GH1, Canon 7D, uh, GH4, the first 4K SLR or 4K mirrorless camera. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Panasonic. I, I'd put the Sony A7S in that. In that Absolutely. Yeah, Sony A7S is a, a remarkable Would you put camera. the, bla the Blackmagic 4K pocket thing, would you put that in that, in that group? I, I absolutely would, would put it in that group. It's not exactly the same form factor as the others, but it, it's definitely in the same class of camera. Sure. Uh, okay, so, so Panasonic announced this week... Uh, well, actually, they announced a few months ago, but they announced all the specs this week and did a big press conference event in Hollywood, which I was fortunate enough to be able to attend, about their new camera called the S1H. And the S1H is a $4,000 full-frame 35. Sweet. 6K internal recording what? camera. 6K 10-bit internal recording, actually, which for people who understand those numbers means it has more resolution than any other camera in this class really uh, at, at a higher bit rate. There is a new Blackmagic camera, which uh, which has recently come out, but I would actually say that that's a slightly different camera. It's, it's a little bit of a different camera, but what I can tell you about this camera is it has all the functionality of a still photo camera. In fact, it matches the, the, the specs basically of the top of the line, full frame, mirrorless uh, photo cameras that are available from Panasonic and some other brands but it adds into it all the advanced features that you would want in a small, high-resolution, ultra-high-definition camera, including stuff that's not found anywhere else, like... Global shutter? Say global shutter. Doesn't have global ah. shutter. <laughs> you know what, though? Uh, very, very, very few cameras have global shutter, but I will say that the rolling shutter that's in this is 
easily as good as anything else in the market in full frame. It's extremely impressive. It has the ability to switch the modes of the sensor too, to be in full frame or in super 35. Nice. It, uh, you can put a PL mount on it and it has four, no, five anamorphic D squeeze modes, if I'm not mistaken. Like, is it like the PL mount, like the kind of PL mount that you make? Yes, exactly. Okay. So, so we'll make, we'll make a new one for this camera as well, but, uh, it can D squeeze for the high end cinema people, uh, one, three, one, three, three, one, five, one, eight, and two times anamorphic, which is wonderful. It also, uh, gives you a real time full size HDMI output. So you can send it to wireless transmitters and use it with Steadicam and all kinds of fun stuff. And use like your Shogun kind of recorder. Although those and, recorders record, I think they max out at 4k, don't they? They do. And I know that Atomos, uh, they made a press release announcement as well, that they are supporting this camera with a raw recording. So they're going to actually have a raw recording system. And there's been one other announcement like that. Uh, they had an announcement with Nikon that Nikon had a camera that would be sending out raw. Uh, it doesn't do that yet. I actually think that this um, Panasonic will beat it to market with doing raw. So, so it's just a matter of time. So what, what kind of medium does it media does it record to? Fairly inexpensive um, SDXC cards. So, really? Yes. And um, not C fast or anything. No, no. And it's got two card slots, so you can record for an infinite length of time. If this existed back when we were shooting the Penn and Teller show all those years ago, like those P two card swaps we had to do in the middle. Uh, these, well, that was just because P two card, like we had the highest capacity P two cards at the time, and I think they were. 16 gigs. I think that's right. Well, now you can put, I think it's 512 or even one terabyte cards inside of here, which will record for hours and hours and hours. And uh, yeah, we can do it in 6K. Wow. And uh, you can do it with uh, high frame rates. You can do it with all kinds of other cool stuff in it too. Not to get super wonky, but like what kind of frame rates does it offer at 6K? Uh, at 6K, it doesn't give you a lot of frame rates, but at 4K, you can get up to 60 with 10 bit. And when you go down to HD, you get a very, very nice 120 frames. Oh, sweet. And you can also not have to window the sensor entirely. You can do. Oh, that's good to know. So you can do a bunch of different things. Now, the but, sensor windowing thing, whoever thought of that? I mean, I. Well, I, it's, so, it, it's so you can get more data off. I, faster, I, so. I guess, but it's like, you know, you have the frame you want and you want to shoot it in slow motion and you don't care if you're getting it at lower resolution. The windowing is like, oh, okay, my, my 50 millimeter lens is now giving me what I'd get out of like a, you know, a hundred millimeter, you know, like I'm punched way in now. Well, here, here, I didn't even get to, t I mean, we talked a lot about specs, but, and it's really easy to get caught up in specs because the specs really are impressive. Yeah. But the thing that's amazing to me Besides the resolution, besides the dynamic range, which is probably 14 stops and all the other sort of great things it does, the camera just looks great. The camera looks freaking great. It is, uh, it's got an HLG mode, which is uh, another three acronym here, a hybrid log gamma, which essentially gives you about the same dynamic range as some of the other more uh, advanced modes like log. However, you don't have to apply a LUT. You see the full image. And I haven't done the scientific test to tell you exactly how much less dynamic range you're getting, but... This camera has incredible color science. One of the engineers from the Vericam project moved over to the Lumix side of Panasonic. And uh, at the event this week, there were a number of people who were calling it the Vericam Micro. And I think that's kind of what it is. It feels like a Vericam that you can hold in your hand. And I'm, I'm not saying that the GH uh, series cameras didn't also kind of feel like this, but this is really a cut above. The GH are very uh, entry level, inexpensive cameras. Uh, this is actually not that much more money. It's a $4,000 camera. I mean, you know, if, you, if you're spending $4,000 on a camera, you're at least serious about imagery on some level. I mean, obviously, if you're spending $4,000, you know, and you're making a, a movie for theatrical release, that's one thing. But like $4,000 is priced so that like a high-end hobbyist or somebody like myself could have this camera in their kit. 
what I think is really interesting, though, is because Panasonic rented out the Dolby Theater uh, at Hollywood and Vine, and it's a fantastic, one of the best screening rooms in all of Los Angeles. And uh, they had some of the sample test films that were shot uh, encoded in HDR and some of them not Mm -hmm. encoded in HDR. But uh, if you would put a paying audience in that room there is not a single person who would have picked out and said, oh, that's a cheap camera. We're seeing a cheap camera here. This does not look like a cheap camera. It looks like an expensive camera, and that is the most impressive thing about and it. And I'm looking at, well, the one I'm looking at is not that exact camera, but it's it's about the same size, right? Same size, same family. Yeah. This is just the, the slightly earlier version, and it makes a very similar image at about half the price, but that camera, for anyone who's a professional, you can get real XLR inputs. You can do all the, it's got time code in and out. It has the Alexa slash Vericam style menu system. No other small camera like this has that. That's so pretty just, cool. And also yeah. like if you're doing a project on a Vericam, you know, it might be a good kind of B cam crash cam. Exactly. Like it second uses, unit kind of cam. It uses the same color gamut, which is beyond BT 2020, which is considered one of the largest color gamuts out there. This is actually a little bit larger than that. And is, I'm a giant fan of the Vericam in uh, uh, season two of 20 seconds to live we shot mostly on the very cam uh, by george foyt on his very cam uh, you know what else we shot on the very cam of what? course was uh ozark which ellen was you know talking oh, about earlier so, yeah so i didn't realize they shot that on the very cam but they sure did oh, yeah interesting crazy rich asians a bunch of bunch of movies shot on that no so. it's, it's an amazing camera and i think it's very versatile and it gives you a great cinematic look so i i'm I, not to go even more wonky into this but you and i were kind of talking off mic about it i'm happy to see panasonic kind of being a player in this space again because i remember when it was like the sony f9 versus the Vericam and the F900 did you know 1080 and the Vericam did 720 but the Vericam in my opinion always had better skin renditions and better colors and even back then did uh, multiple frame rates which which the F900 didn't do and then uh, you know there was the DVX100 which you and I co-owned one for a while oh yeah that's right that was the first uh, mini DV camera that had 24p like I feel like Panasonic was way out ahead of everybody and then when the Canon 5D came out kind of Panasonic lost that lead I see I disagree you love the 5d because it had a full frame sensor and I know that's why you'll also love this camera the GH1 was a was a very competent camera that you didn't like because it had a small sensor I'm not I'm not down on the GH1 I think the GH1 is an excellent camera and I think that that whole family I just think in 2009 it was excellent but the five I think it's I don't think that you can make the argument that people were choosing between those two things people went to the 5d the 5d was kind of the it camera of its of its day it also had champions though too and it had a like like shane hurlbutt friend friend of the show and you know it shot 30 frames a second it didn't shoot a recognized standard format of you know high definition yeah uh, it was that didn't come till later and that was a big surprise to everyone the panasonic out of the gate did shoot hd it did actually have it was the I, only I'm, camera i'm absolutely not down on panasonic oh, I I'm, know. Just, I'm just glad that they are kind of because i have always believed well since back in the day that that panasonic had the superior color science to everybody else i'm not i'm not i'm not trying to argue with you but i'm, I'm what i'm trying to set up here is that there are certain times in the history where Panasonic was clearly the market leader, and at least as of today, uh, they're the market leader again, I'd say. I, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. That makes me very happy. All right. So, Ben, what's your what's your short end? My short end will be a, a lot shorter than that. Um, <laughs> but I uh, was hired. I'm, I'm not really a professional camera guy all the time, but I do some freelance work for this one division of Disney. And I was hired uh, last weekend to shoot uh, at D23 Expo, which is a big Disney Expo thing. And a lot of times when I shoot for them, uh, you know, it's kind of like a day thing where I'll come in and they'll hand me a Sony a7s mark two and I'll run around and get a bunch of b-roll So I showed up and they had like uh, c300s on easy rigs 
and we were all like running zoom around. lenses massive zoom lenses the zoom lens probably weighed twice what the camera weighed Oof. and uh yes in 12 hours in an easy rig blah 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 uh, that that is neither here nor there so they sent us out with um with with sort of a producer slash pa character in, in my case it was a guy named marcus burke who's a really good guy and they gave them all um, iPads with a an Adobe application called Live Logger on it. So w- what Live Logger enabled us to do, because like they had seven teams, and uh, Disney Expo is, it's like Comic Con if it was just Disney. Hmm. And I mean, at this point, everything Disney, I everything mean, Marvel, so everything Star Wars, Star Wars. Yeah. National Geographic. Disney owns National Geographic now. They own ESPN now. Don't they own the Simpsons, too? Now? They do because they own Fox. And so all that stuff was there. And um, and so they had seven teams and we're just spraying the stuff down like we are just shooting everything, inserts of this and that and pulling people aside for interviews. And it would be making an assistant editing nightmare for somebody except this live logger application, uh, which again runs on uh, an iPad, enabled our guy to, uh, or girl, but in my case it was a guy, uh, to type in whatever it was we were doing. So if it was like, you know, at, at Marvel booth, got a uh, close up of, you know, uh, Iron Man pin, whatever it was. Um, so he types that in, and since we were running uh, time of day time code on all the cameras, and the iPad obviously has time of day, they bring it into another app that's Adobe called Prelude, and it adds all the meta tags of all that data. So if you're a company like Disney or the specific division of Disney that I freelance for, um, you, you go through such massive amounts of media on projects like this, and you never know like which, which vendor, which sponsor, which this, which that is going to need your video. So like six years from now, they might be like, Hey, we need a close up of the food truck that was on the street, blah, blah, blah. And this live logger thing enables them to meta tag everything so that they can just pull that crap up. And I think in the future for any documentary like project I do, I'm not going to fly without live logger because it'll save me God knows how much time of just like pouring through media to find that one thing I was looking for. And you can even like set up specific tags. So like one of the ones that they, that they gave us, and I think you can customize it was money shot. And like when we're, when we're doing this stuff, you know, like a money shot might be like, uh, there were these, these people like impeccably cosplaying all of the Avengers all at once. And, uh, you know, it's like I got like a cool zoom in while they all took a pose. That's a money shot. That's going to end up in a sizzle reel somewhere. And so our production guy can just like tag that just hits a button. Doesn't have to like you don't have to type anything in or think real hard. It's just they know at this time of day we got something that you need to look at. And uh, it really uh, I think, you know, when you're doing run and gun style stuff, which a lot of us do from time to time. And, you know, this was me just doing camera, but I also direct a lot of stuff that ends up being kind of run and gun ish. It would be super helpful to be able to have this kind of running log of whatever it is that we're doing. It sounds amazing because it sounds like this app or software uh, handles the synchronization for you. Does it do it with time code? How how does that happen? Uh, Well, so it's just tagging it by time of day. So it's not handling synchronization uh, because all the audio is going right into the camera anyway. No, but I mean synchronizing with what's happening because you've got an app and it's got time of day time code and you've got a camera with time of day time code. Yeah. And then when you take the show notes or when you take the the data input, how exactly is that getting into the... So you bring it in... So uh, Adobe makes an application called Prelude. Now you can bring... It's giving you, I believe, just an XML file that you could bring into almost anything. So you could just bring it into... uh, you could just bring it into Premiere or if you're editing in um, 
Resolve or Final Cut Pro or something, you could probably just bring in an XML file and, and go to town. But Prelude enabled them to uh, enable the assistant editors on site to kind of marry the metadata into all the files. So it's and and then they brought that file. So they exported. They're not they're not uh, they're not compressing the file or doing anything. It's just kind of taking the video file and adding another wrapper to it. I think that has all the metadata tagged onto it so that when it goes into Premiere, now it's got markers and you can go through and find all the stuff. So we're a non-technical podcast and here are short ends for both involving tech this time so 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 nerdy well but i think to me this is this is a craft thing though because if you're shooting documentary that's true this is definitely and you're if you if you get that new panasonic camera Mm -hmm. and you're out shooting a documentary on it and you need to know where the money shot is you need to know where any of that stuff is even if it's like you you could so like your producer could be watching an interview or the director could be watching an interview and even not even looking you know just kind of have the ipad off to the side and when you get a great answer you could kind of drop a pin there you could kind of say money shot or whatever you wanted to say like i'm sure you can just set up so it says like perfect sound bite and uh you could also have uh, a producer or a production assistant or somebody typing in like the questions you were doing while you're doing it so that you have kind of a log of everything and that's so and handy anyone that's so who, handy. who's ever cut a, a documentary project or an interview based project knows how much time you're going to spend doing that huge amounts of time and if you if you could even have like the bullet point version of it when you walked in you might save yourself unbelievable hours probably of, could be of weeks. slogging yeah weeks i mean it depends on how yeah. big of a project it is and yeah i mean it's like i i will slog through an interview and, and you know to find that perfect bite but if i knew like okay the perfect bite is right here uh it, it could save me a lot of time and it's not taking you any more time on set because the interview is just going to take as long as the interview takes hmm. that's awesome so that is my short end that's a good short end so anyway, uh, again, uh, I, I want to, before we even uh, finish, I want to say a big thanks and shout out to our producer, uh, Alana Cody, for making the Ellen Kuros interview happen. Um, she was just the, the most amazing interview and she was great and, she, you know, she's a superstar and she's directing a lot of stuff right now. So, so uh, you know, tune into Ozark, tune into Umbrella Academy, tune into Catch-22. Uh, she's directing all of those and all of those shows currently nominated for Emmy Awards. Yeah. yeah, she 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 she's awesome. So yeah, check out her career. And I'm not I'm not trying to be down on all of the other amazing DPs that we've had, but she, <laughs> she was just, just dev- like you know people like her and Russell Carpenter were like way on the list. And I feel like I could do like it's sort of like with Rodney Charters. I feel like I could do you know uh, an a week. I could do an hour <laughs> on just Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. You know, or personal velocity, or there, she has she's shot so many movies that I'm that I think visual the visuals were just genius level visionary stuff. So well, uh, and she also kind of helped kicks off uh, sort of a swing we're going to be doing of more directors coming on the show. Sweet, yeah. Although we didn't really talk that much about her director. I mean, we talked a little bit, you know, but it was mostly about her cinematography. Anyway, so that about wraps up the show. Uh, we want to thank uh, firstly our editors Ben and Abby. Thank you so much. Woohoo! Thank you, editorial staff. And again, another thanks to Alana Cody for making it all happen. Wow, you you thanked her twice in one episode. She gets she gets a lot of thanks. Oh. She 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 works her ass off. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, should we thank? Should we bother thanking Kay's? He's not listening. Uh, I'm gonna thank Kay's on the off chance that you know, like one day, like like let's say he's he's, he's got pneumonia, he's dying. Let's say he yeah. ha- no. Let's say he he, he has amnesia. <laughs> oh, he, he can't remember he can't anything. Remember who he is? So yeah. he does like a Google search for his name, and then our podcast comes up because we mention him a lot. He scrolls and right past. Then he starts <laughs> listening to, to us, and uh, 
you know, falls in love with cinematography. I mean, he's already in love with cinematography because he does everything. Anyway. What's going to be great is someday as he he does hear us trolling him like this episode after episode at the end of every single one. Yeah, he's he's going to he's going to know how much we love him. Though. He, he is. Well, but again, any any piece of music you heard in this was done by Kays. You can check out his website, musicbykays.com. He recently started a website for his directing. Did you know that? No, I didn't. But it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Is he going to start another website for curing cancer? Is that next? Probably. So. <laughs> uh, all right. So, Ben, where, where can people find you? Uh, go to benrockonline.com because, again, benrock.com was owned by a boat company. That's right. And uh, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras or on any of the social medias. I'm at Ilya Friedman. And we will see you at episode 45, although you won't see that number on iTunes. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.